Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. What do you like listening to? Um. <laughs> Don't Chart music. <laughs> <laughs> Chart music. Hey, up you pop crazy youngsters, and welcome to the latest edition of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hand right down the back of the settee on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and as always, I'm joined by two people who are not me. The first is your friend and mine, and I mean that most sincerely, Taylor Parks. Hey up, Taylor, how are you? Hello, Al. Yeah, I'm all right. I've just had a, a mild case of pneumonia. So Lovely. Yeah, I'm I'm better now, except that my chest is still rogered. So if oh. I speak even more slowly than usual, it's because I can't breathe. Also, if my voice seesaws between sounding like Isaac Hayes and sounding like uh, Enoch Powell in his later years. <laughs> sort of high and tremulous and breathless. That's why it's because I can't fucking breathe. But apart from that, I'm just fantastic. Lovely. My second guest was down with chart music from day one, Sarah B. Hey up, Sarah. Welcome back to the chart music settee. Hello, sailor. <laughs> How are we? Uh, not too bad. I've been uh, employed at a job of work today. Um, Good Lord. Making, uh, making some words sound better for... Amazing luxury holidays that I'll Fantastic. never go on. Yeah, so. I know. I've done a bit of that. It's, uh, it's yeah, interesting, isn't it? How the other half yeah. live. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, well, how the, it's it's proper one percent stuff. Lovely. So, what what else you been up to? Um, well, um, I did a Kickstarter Ooh, recently, you know? which actually which which involved just bothering all my mates for a solid month, going, go on, give us money, go on, give us money. And I felt I felt so bad, but it worked. Good. It worked. So. Uh, that means that uh, there's going to be a book out in uh, March, yeah. um, which is a satirical picture book about Brexit, which I think we can all agree that is desperately needed. We can't <laughs> go any further without making mention of Sounds Like Friday Night, the BBC's newish music show, which was originally billed as the new Top of the Pops. Now, there's been three episodes now, and I asked, some might say forced, your two to have a look at it, seeing as we're so down with the youth them. Taylor, why don't you why don't you start us off? Yeah, um, I only skim watched the most recent one as, like I said, I did have pneumonia and I didn't want to waste my few available breaths screaming abuse at someone whose name I'm not a hundred percent sure of. Yes. The best thing you can say about it is that it it represents the the sort of the tatty end of youth pop culture about as well as Top of the Pops did. Um, but we're in 2017, so you know what that actually means is sort of these uh, ugly tattoo sleeves and vile haystack beards and posh lads with these little wazzy shirt collars done right up to the top like a spoilt three-year-old. Yeah, I mean, if this is a reflection on uh, youth culture today, then fuck being young. 
<laughs> what a bag of a wank it is. It's the sort of the, the commercial sort of uh, light entertainment end of it, isn't it? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, it's exactly the same, except that the presentation is is stiffer and more old-fashioned than it was yeah. in the 70s and 80s Top of the Pops. Half an hour and four songs. I mean, that's not so bad, considering that the four songs are usually cat shit. But, I mean, fucking hell, surely you can do a bit more with a music show in 2017 than, than this. Sarah, you, you're younger than us. You understand the kids. <laughs> I'm not much younger, but still, I, I was kind of... Uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really think much of it either way. I mean, I'm, clearly I'm not the target audience any more than, than you are. But, um, you know, I thought, oh, look, it's, um, it's, I'm, it kind of looked a bit more expensive than I expected. I mean, I know they mm. just kind of got like a warehouse and, and put some lights in it. But I, I kind of, I did get a bit of a, a kind of a ping of nostalgia just from like the camera swoops, you know, just this yeah. kind of, we're so excited. I mean, just that, I know that it's always false, but just the sort of, it's a really good idea of them to anchor it to a night like this. Cause I thought, oh, it's such a weak title, but it's like I said before, you know, Thursday night, I still get a bit of a, I still have a bit of a frisson about it because it was mm. top of the pops night. So it's a really nice idea to go, it's Friday night and it's this, you know. Yeah. But I mean, I, yeah, it's it's um it's pretty weak source. But um the thing the thing is that I noticed as well is that the um, top of the pops was always like fantastically awkward. Like the audience always looks so awkward, and now yeah. it's like this is an audience of people who are of of younguns who are totally comfortable with being filmed, being looked at, whatever, and mm. just seemed there was a particular that you know, and they they were all so excited, and it seemed sort of quite natural i was quite surprised so i was like oh they're all going to be really cynical they're all going to be standing around going oh but actually no. it was like you know they they kind of you know there was some sort of i mean studios are always weird you know they're always really weird yeah. but there was some sort of an atmosphere about it it's like if i was yeah. 16 i'd probably probably be all over it but i'm not and i'm quite glad of it i think if i was 16 i'd hate it um, <laughs> as much as i hated its equivalent when i was 16 but oh my god I wonder what you were like when you were 16. Sorry, well, I just had like this horrible yeah, thought. 16-year-old like, yeah, <laughs> Taylor. We'll find out as this episode progresses. <laughs> I, mean, it's, I mean, the one thing I got out of it is I finally learned out who Charlie Puth is. And uh, I, I discovered he's a cunt. <laughs> the best thing but, was when they, they, the one I saw, uh, the whole of, the one before last, they had Dizzy Rascal on it. And mm. they said oh, he did to a swear? Him, yeah, but they said to him, your new album, it seems like a return to form. No, you don't say that to somebody's face. You r might write that in a review, but if you say that to someone's face, what you're saying is, I thought your last album was shit, and so did yeah. everyone else. Yeah. That's true, actually. There was the other thing about this, this programme, which is they break up the music, of course, which you have to, because, hey, music, right, boring. Um, yeah. So they had to. They go out in the streets and they do they do little bits and skits, which I actually found quite charming. Trying to get oh, people to trying to get people to sing along with them in a lift. You know what's his name? Um, put on a stupid moustache. Oh, tried to get some people to sing along in a lift in, in a shopping centre, and it was. I thought that was great when it was on That's Life. <laughs> you know, maybe you can get someone to be Cyril well, Fletcher and and read out fucking typos in the NME for this week or something like that. He would be a great addition. We yes. all know that hu at this point, I think I think we can agree that humanity is out of ideas. Never mind, you know the culture. So it's yeah. like you, you take what you can. But also, they flagrantly stole uh, a bit from Jimmy Kimmel, where uh, they went round and uh, although it it still it worked, you know they went round and made up genres at people and went, mm. what do you think about this genre then? And uh, you know filmed people bluffing and blagging it, 
and going, yeah, yeah. no, I think slime is, is going to be the sound of 2018. Definitely, definitely, 100%. Mm. It's like, twat. So that was quite... Yeah. That- I, was imp- I was impressed by the fact that, that they put um, Liam Payne out of One Direction, who mm. looks, he looks like a, a cute a cardo delivery boy, right? <laughs> like if you brought your shopping around, you'd go, oh, wow, if I was gay... But the thing is, they put him in a wig and a tash. People still knew who he was. That's how famous he is. I'm looking at this thinking, what the... I didn't even recognise him when he didn't have it on. No, he had his name written on his forehead. I still wouldn't know who he was. Uh, but what I wasn't impressed by is when they're trying to do little comedy bits, right? They did Oh, it. that was shit, wasn't they, it? They, were, they got... Um, what's the name? Demi Lovato into a thing yeah. this week and they were trying to do some sort of under-rehearsed comedy bit so he was just sort of looking like what I, what I, I don't yeah what you're doing it's it, and it's this idea which has been going around for about 10 years now that people mm. who aren't comedy writers can write comedy or just come up with funny ideas it's all right yeah. you don't have to get and it's just another manifestation of this increasing contempt for writers whether it's mm. gag writers or journalists <sighs> or novelists or writing is valued less than ever before at a time when yeah. there are more words being generated and consumed every day than at any point in history and almost all of them are bad because mm. writing professional writing has become uh it's no longer a profession it's an additional task for people who already have other jobs and yeah. think that they're funny or think that it doesn't matter um mm. and you know for every stupid new made up word that enters the language 10 good words effectively disappear because it's <laughs> contracting as a result of being left entirely in the hands of people who aren't writers and that's what yes. gets my back up hey ho well, eh? never mind yeah, never mind <laughs> <laughs> but I I've, mean, had a, I've had a lot of time to think over the last couple of weeks in my sick bed <laughs> not all of it positive <laughs> no, fancy that, eh? <laughs> but, um, I don't need some twat whose name I don't know doing something unamusing. No, you know what quite, I mean. That's quite right. Yeah. Yes. And if they and if they want to do these skits and everything, well, just send some fucking runner out with a with a bloody camera phone and do it and uh, and shut the fuck up about it. Yeah. Or yeah. we'll hire a fucking comedian. Yeah. What's Mark Me Words doing nowadays? He could do a job on this. <laughs> What about Dapper Laughs? I miss that guy. That was oh, a more yeah. innocent he's a, time, he's wasn't a card, it? Isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I'm, the thing is, you know, by looking at, it, I think, all right, and uh, yeah, I would actually like a show where you could see, you know, nine or ten or twelve examples of what's in the charts at the minute. Even if I could just sit there with my nephew and just go, well, this is shit. This is shit. Look at him. What a twat. And, uh, <laughs> you can still do that nowadays. Um, I, and. I mean, the thing, if you're going to do a chart show, you could do it miles better than Top of the Pops ever could by simply having it when the charts come out and you could actually have the chart results live on this TV show. I mean, Christ, you could have, you know, you wouldn't have to have bands lined up. You wouldn't have to worry about booking or anything like that. Just stick the video on. Or because you know throughout the week what the sales are like, you know, apparently you can fucking see them by the minute. You know, there's going to be an obvious, oh, well, that's obviously going to be number one. Let's get them in. Um, I you think know, is, is it that difficult? Maybe you we know? should do this. Maybe yeah, we, we should, should do this. This should be our we next should. thing. Can we do like a yeah. public access telly thing? Yeah, yeah, we I, should. I don't know. I don't know if we're... I don't know if we're posh enough to be trusted <laughs> with this. 
No, that's that's the that's the problem, isn't it? Yeah, I <laughs> know. I can I can I can like posh up, but you know, not when. Uh, uh, yeah, I can't I can't really sustain it for very long. And I just start saying uh, bollocks, you know. Yeah, and I can't really do a beard. My beard's a shit, <laughs> and I'm not having any tattoos. So, I know we've got. To... We had it. We tried though, didn't we? <laughs> I'm, I'm got... now old enough that if I grew a beard, um, I'd look like Ken Bates. So, no, <laughs> you know. We've got the title, though. Um, this is shit. Look at him. What a twat. Yes. <laughs> I would yeah. watch that. I would, I yeah. would TiVo that. And, uh, well, we won't, probably won't talk about this ever again, but I just want it put on the record that I would sooner watch my dad shitting into a glass bucket in the market square <laughs> than another episode of Sounds Like Friday Night. What, again? <laughs> again. <laughs> Right then, let's go back to the fucking old school, me ducks. This Hooray. episode takes us all the way back to September the 24th, 1987. Oh, and there's some proper music here, isn't there, Taylor? Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> it's universally known to most of us as chart music as the era of bad 80s and a period of time that we pretty much avoided whenever we can. Taylor, am I right in thinking that you're of the opinion that 1987 is is even worse than 1975? Yeah, you said to me, uh, didn't I once say it was the absolute low point of chart music? And I say, no, it's the absolute low point of Western civilization. Oh, (laughs) sorry about that. Sorry to want to sell it. Yeah, get it right. It's this is. Um, I mean, we're talking about the period that uh, led to me becoming so alienated that I blew out school, never went to university, just ended up working for the council and taking acid, and uh, it got me where I am today. So, so, what were you doing for the council in 1987? And it wasn't the style council, was it? Alas, no. I worked for the courts and I worked for the. Uh, um, the DHSS, as was, um, oh, which was beautiful because it meant that when I went for a Dole interview after that, they said, uh, you have to sign a form saying how much you prepared to work for, like what's the minimum that you would accept as a wage? And I said, well, what can I put, you know, 50 grand a year? What's the? And they said, well, what's the lowest wage you've ever worked for? And I said, 75 quid a week. And they sort of went, oh, Christ, where, where did you get that? And I said, here upstairs that's what the people working one grade below you are earning so that showed him yes. oh. <laughs> yeah where, where is he now got a three eh? bedroom house and uh, and two cars <laughs> but is he up here yeah probably yeah 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 fuck him Music-wise, though, Taylor, let's 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 make it all about the music, baby. This is the low point of pop cultural history from the Second World War right up to the moment where the internet blasted all these considerations into oblivion. This is the absolute nadir. The fucking nineties was a step up from this, which is really <laughs> saying something. This is a, a grey and pink flecked, gelled-up nightmare of fucking vacuous consumer junk. Um, and an aesthetic where where cocaine and turbo capitalism were the only influences and everything else was opposed. And this is where I spent what should have been the best years of my youth. This is why I'm bitter. I was 15 in 1987. Right. Uh, the last years of the 80s uh, with, 
you know, Thatcher rampant and everything turning to dust. Those are my late teenage years. And this was this. Well, no, this wasn't the soundtrack because outside of the charts, um, it was a sort of a last hurrah for rock and hip hop was mm. really good. And uh, I was mm. a couple of years too young for Acid House, but it, I knew it was happening. Um, but mm. yeah, the charts and as a result, mainstream youth culture in this period, it doesn't get any lower than this. I mean, we're damning it already before we're examining the evidence, but let's not fuck about. Why, why, why was chart music so fucking awful in 1987? I'm going to suggest that um, it's... Uh, I mean, I, I, can't, I can't completely agree with you because, you know, I was nine years old. You've got to forgive me for this. You know, I was, mm. everything was still really exciting to me at this point. And, you know, stuff This is your of... in point, isn't it, Sarah? Well, it's, you know, I was... I was kind of aware of, you know, it, it's, I, was, uh, I was aware of things for, um, you know, quite a few years before this, but this is kind of when, when you start to sort of really form your taste and stuff. So, you know, um, unlucky me. I mean, I always thought I was born under mm. a bad sign anyway because um, the, uh, the number one when I was born was matchstalk men and matchstalk cats and dogs. Oh, oh, God. <laughs> I thought it was uptown top ranking and then I realised I got it wrong and it's like, come on. Oh, like, how, how is... <laughs> That's, yeah. That's like me. I narrowly missed Metal Guru, and instead I got Amazing Grace by the pipes and drums of the <laughs> Scots Dragoon That Guard. makes us, I think astrologically, that actually makes us twins. Mine was What a Wonderful World by uh, Louis Armstrong. And, yeah, it kind of was. Now I was in it, I think. No, that, you know, that's fair enough. But, yeah, I, I, would, uh, I would posit a theory that um, at this point... A lot of stuff had gone down. I think the decade was knackered. It was really, it was tired. And it's like it had to have a little disco nap before mm. before Acid House kicked in. You know, something was coming. Something was just yeah. around the corner. It was absolutely huge. And, you know, maybe this was like the fallow mm. period before before that, you know, before that happened. Because, you know, if you just think of everything that came before it and it's like it just fell over a little bit. Yeah. But the trouble is that fallow period was my, was, was my youth. It's like the uh, it's like my mum and dad got married in uh, late 1962, and I always think it's like it's like that. If you're just a couple of years out, you you miss out on a whole load of experience. Really selfish of them. <laughs> I mean, you know, what were they thinking? But the worst thing about being that age at that time was the seeming impossibility of all the things that being that age is meant to be about, like rebellion and self-expression. There was nothing to, there's no, uh, no, nothing to tie a flag to, you know, like communism had failed, hippie libertarianism had failed, punk was a joke, social democracy was being crushed. Um, and I had moved down south and suddenly I was stuck in this sort of, middle-class world where I didn't really fit and I tried to embrace it for a few years and got a bit tweedy which was a disaster uh, and really <laughs> I was nowhere I was cut off from the one good thing about being white trash which is that you can live your life in a natural direct kind of way which I no longer could uh, but I didn't have the comfort and the confidence of being properly middle-class so it just ended up with me and my mate drinking black coffee and smoking millions of filterless fags in turtlenecks in Woolworths Cafe because we didn't know any good ones <laughs> like it was the 1950s because in a sense it nice. was. It really, it really was. Absolute beginners. Yeah, and that was shit and all, wasn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, what was in the news this week? Well, 
Alan McCoist has been fined 150 quid for beating somebody up in a disco in East Kilbride. The Court of Appeal in New South Wales has lifted the ban on the Peter Wright box spy catcher, leading to it being imported into the UK. The inquest into the Hunger Massacre begins. North Korea offers to co-host next year's Summer Olympics, but South Korea tells them to fuck off. The Thatcher government attempts to outlaw sex education in schools, which treats homosexuality as normal. Joe Biden's dropped out of the Democratic presidential candidate race for nicking speeches off Neil Kinnock. But the big news this week, according to the tabloids, is that Michael Jackson is planning to build a replica of Buckingham Palace and has asked the Queen if he could have a nose round her gaff to see what's what and where everything goes. <laughs> Possibly not true, that last one. Not sure. Oh, it's it's well everything around that time though. It was just like any um, that you could you could just have a whole museum of stuff. You know, Michael Jackson stories that were or were not true, and we'll probably you know something we'll never know. On the cover of the enemy this week is the motorcycle boy who was slapped on the cover at the last minute after a feature on censorship was pulled as it featured H.R. Giza's penis landscape, which was being used as a poster that was inserted into the Dead Kennedys LP, Frank in Christ, and was the subject of an ongoing obscenity trial in America. On the cover of Smash is Wet, Wet, Wet. The number one LP in the country at the moment is Bad by Michael Jackson. Over in America, the US number one single is I Just Can't Stop Loving You by Michael Jackson. And the number one LP in the USA is the soundtrack to La Bamba. Oh, you Americans, when will you ever catch us up? <laughs> you know, they're using that now as uh, there was a, 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 a counter protest to a white supremacist march and they played La, they played La Bamba at them. Did they? Uh, which I don't know, there's something really beautiful about that. They were all sort of um, having, a, having a lovely party and these, there's this horrible, you know... This horrible fat Nazi going, yeah, you can party all you like. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we've got La Bamba on. Everything's great. Yeah. Oh, if only they put on the Gay Cavaleros by Steve Wright afterwards, that would have fucked with their heads. <laughs> so what we were doing in September of 1987, my dear. Sarah, you go first. Um, what was I doing? I was at, yeah. Um, yeah, well, I was still at primary school. I was nine. And uh, yeah, God, I was eating a lot of jam sandwiches um mm -hmm. and yeah um obviously my uh favorite album was um songs about fucking by the big black <laughs> <laughs> no actually no to be fair it's probably scum by napalm death no music wise but, uh, what, what are you into uh, or are you you still in the pony um, stage of your uh life if they if, if, if you had one that was really patronizing i'm sorry that was incredibly patronising and, and, and sexist, and, and I demand that you take it back. No, I, I, no, I was into... Um, well, the thing is that um, Fuzzbox, um, who had uh, recently um, rebranded from We've Got a Fuzzbox uh -huh. and They're Going to Use It, they kind of came back as, as um, in, in a sort of pure pop incarnation in, in 1987 yeah. and um, put out two singles, Pink Sunshine and That's International right, yeah. Rescue. And they were basically... They were my Spice Girls, oh. effectively. You're watching Top of the Pops, obviously. Watch Top of the Pops, listen to the charts. That was pretty much that was pretty much it, actually. I mean, that's like what an immense responsibility, uh, you know, that these these two shows had on on my early development. Did you read Smash Hits? Yeah, I was starting to read Smash Hits. Yeah. Yeah, because I I still read Smash Hits at this point, even though I was a sort of uh, cynical. 15 year old miserablest because um, it was still really good it was the last 
period when Smash Hits was written by uh, early 80s people with principles before it sort of dissolved into a, a big ha-ha of camp whimsy, you know, and nothing else. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was in the second year at college uh, after dropping out and having years off and all that kind of stuff and absolutely loving the shit out of it. Uh, got, got to meet a load of people from outside of my state for the first time and they chucked loads of music at me and I chucked loads of music back at them. At the time, I was massively into James Brown, uh, loved Sly and the Family Stone, I was mental about them, uh, and I was pretty much into Rear Groove before I even knew it was called Rear Groove. It was just music that I liked and I bought from all the second-hand record shops in town, and the only modern music I listened to was hip-hop, which I fucking loved. Uh, I've been into it for about a year, I'd seen Run DMC and the Beastie Boys a couple of months earlier in uh, in Birmingham. And uh, I already had my ticket for Public Enemy, Eric B and Rakim and Hello Cool J at Rock City that was that was happening next month. So, yeah, fucking a good time for me and a very good time for music, but not in the charts. Yeah, I'm, I yeah. mean, I really thought that that's the thing. I've, I'm really good in my life at just kind of missing, just catching the very, very tail end of a thing when it's good. And mm. then just, you know, because this is exactly what I did with Melody Maker. I turned up in... Uh, mid like midsummer 99 and then christmas 2000 it folded and it's like oh man mate and of course you know it was already i mean it was it was already complete bollocks by then but you know i kind of hadn't quite uh you know yeah i mean what are you going to do you know by the time you get to you get to write to me you go oh great this is good and then it's it's like a few months in it's like yeah, this whole this this ship is definitely sinking. But you know mm. what can what can you do? I think Ta- Taylor actually actually was there for the last gasp of when it was good, and that's what got me into it. You know, then by the time I managed to drag my ass to London, it was basically all over. But the vomiting. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I'd gone I'd gone by the time you arrived. I, I only met you socially, didn't I? But the I felt this way about pop culture. That's the thing. I felt that. All the things that I'd been waiting for since I was 11 or 12 mm. had just evaporated as soon as I'd got to 15, 16. It was like, you know, uh, rebellion was silly and <laughs> beauty was a branch of economics and sex was sexist yeah. and besides it gave you AIDS. Yes. And all this stuff had just uh, just gone and I was just standing there, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. What am I supposed yeah, to and, do? Yeah, and drugs were smack and nothing else. Yeah, I got, in the lower six, the word got round that I'd smoked a joint um, <laughs> in lunch break or I'd skived off games or something. And me and a, a mate of mine had, had a joint <laughs> in the back of the playing field. And my nickname for the next six months was Druggy. <laughs> <laughs> this is in the sixth form, yeah. right? Oh, that's the that's the environment that I was in. All the all the girls used to dress like Tipper Gore. And <laughs> oh, nice! Pretty much think like Tipper Gore, and all the boys were just sort of wandering around like with nothing. They didn't know what they were supposed to be doing or who they were supposed to be. Yeah. Um, and the attitude was, you know, if your music that you like, like you know. What her the pixies? <laughs> if it's so good, why isn't it in the charts? Yeah. Everyone was in. Uh, yeah. What are they like? Deacon Blue. Oh right. Hot House Flowers. Oh, it was that sort of stuff. That you know, sort of like faux, faux Celtic rock. You know, real uh, music. Re- yeah, like people doing songs called Dignity and stuff <laughs> like that. And yeah, that's what everyone liked. And if I tried to put on, you know, I remember putting on old music in the sixth form, right in the common room on the tape player put on I think it was uh, 
uh, Piper at the Gates of Dawn right. by Pink Floyd, which is like one of the greatest albums ever. No, it was the Velvet Underground and Nico. That's what it was. Yeah. And it was just off within two minutes. What the hell is this? Oh. Get it off. What is this stupid music? <laughs> Get it off and put fucking <laughs> then hot Jericho on. back on. Yeah, yeah, Simply Red. <laughs> oh. It's really fun because I used to get loads of shit for being into hip hop, and it was like, okay, I am the whitest person in Nottingham, and I fucking love this music. You know, finally, there's, there's some music that's in the here and now that I fucking love. And, uh, you know, I, it took me ages to work out how to dress for it, and I eventually went for kind of like a black denim jacket and black jeans, like Run DMC, but more of a very high contrast shaking Stevens and it it took me ages to get a pair of trainers that I liked but I also could afford and I've I somehow managed to find some some shop that was selling uh, Adidas basketball boots canvas basketball boots and they were white but they had blue stripes and I wanted black stripes but it's like no the 20 quid I, I can afford them and I'm walking around with them and I was moving a load of shit out of my bedroom and I had a load of old annuals I looked at this photo of the Bay City Rollers and they're wearing my fucking trainers. Oh, no. I, I got a pair of Bay City Roller trainers. <laughs> yeah, but you were wearing them box fresh. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so, what else was on telly this day? Well, BBC One has screened Racing from Ascot, Wizbit, Batty Adventures. What, Sarah, do you know what Batty Adventures is? It sounds like a, sounds like a Shabba Ranks album. <laughs> Yeah, surely this would have been outlawed under uh, Section 28. (laughs) And then there's Beat the Teacher, Thundercats, News Round, Blue Peter, and has just finished screening local news in your area. BBC Two has repeated Finger Mass, the British Professional Darts Championship from Redcar, a documentary about British people pissing off to Spain, Battlestar Galactica, and is currently showing the second and final episode of Starshot, a clay pigeon shooting tournament featuring Lindsay <laughs> DePaul that was stopped after the Hungerford Massacre. Oh, what a shame. <laughs> wow. <laughs> ITV has put on the Sullivans, That's My Dog with Derek Hobson, Storybook International, Professor Lobster. Again, another one I don't know. Sarah, Professor Lobster? No, I've got nothing. Sounds like a grime artist. Fucking hell, Sarah, you wasted your nine-year-oldness not knowing all these TV shows. What are you doing? Reading nose in a book? I remember Finger Mouse. Yeah, 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 I probably did. I was one of those, yeah. Yeah. Then Blockbusters, and it's currently screening Emmerdale Farm. Channel 4, on the other hand, has screened the film Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, The Gong Show, a documentary about pigeon fanciers, and has just started Channel 4 News. All right then, pop craze youngsters, it's time to get down on the time settee and chuck a send 30 years backwards. You know the drill by now. We may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget... They've been on Top of the Pops more than we have. And now, Gary Davis and Mike Smith with Top of the Pops. The seventh Top of the Pops theme, The Wizard, 
was composed by Paul Hardcastle, best known for the 1985 number one hit 19, and was used from April of 1986 to September of 1991. That song got to number 15 in October of 1986, so it's kind of bedded in by now. So, panel, where does this song stand in the Hello. Top of the Pops canon of theme tunes? I don't want to criticise Paul Hardcastle after his service in Vietnam, but... It, this, it, the music and the uh, yeah. and the title sequence just immediately tells you everything that's wrong with this era. This uh, sort of smeary, wiggly aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, like you've got a Top of the Pops logo that's now a complete mess um, with about 20 different fonts yeah. crammed into four short words. Yeah, oh, it's awful, isn't it? But that was the, that was the style yeah. at the time, I, I believe. It really was, yeah. Wiggly lines, uh, asymmetrical squiggle. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and you've got, like, Gary Davis in soft fabrics and a <laughs> thin leather belt and pleated Cheetos. Yeah. Uh, nothing is sharp. Nothing is focused. Mm. Nothing's pointing in any direction, right? It's just uh, it's just a, a, a triumph of, of uh, a sort of, cocaine mind splurge over symmetry and humanity and that's just what's good about it don't get don't get me started on the and it's you can hear it in the sound there's these amorphous uh sort of belching fair light sounds Mm. or whatever they are that it's very much a happy shopper um rocket by um herbie hancock isn't it but those sounds aren't exciting and they don't evoke anything. No. It just sounds like expensive machines chattering to each other. Um, Sarah, this, though, is must be the Pavlov's bell for you. <laughs> it is, yeah, absolutely. It is. I just start, I, I start salivating. I just can't help myself. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, I mean, it's look, looking at it now and, and experiencing that now and just going, yeah, this is kind of a squirrely kind of crumpled cellophane audiovisual mess. Yeah. And the credits, I mean, they, they feature saxophones, vinyl and cassettes spinning around. And as, as Tommy Vance would say, not a guitar in sight. <laughs> oh, but because, yeah, there's a lovely, the lovely spinny cassette. There's a lovely spinny cassette, which means, you know, music is about to happen. Yeah. yeah. that's It's the international sign language. Well, well, people are about to tape it. Yeah. Illegally. Yeah. This episode of Top of the Pops is hosted by Mike Smith and Gary Davis. We've already covered Gary Davis in Chart Music's number two and number seven. And the only thing to say about him is at the moment, he's not doing anything on Radio 1, but he has appeared on Blankety Blank this year. So it's, it's not been a total waste. Born in Romford in 1955, Mike Smith attended King Edward VI Grammar School and was the DJ at the Sixth Form Discos. I bet he wouldn't have approved of uh, the Velvet Underground in Nico either, Taylor. I strongly doubt it. (laughs) After failing to break into the motor racing career his dad wanted for him, he started working at Chelmsford Hospital Radio in the mid-70s and was invited to freelance for the BBC doing interviews on the Radio 1 Roadshow. In 1978, he joined Capital Radio in London and became the breakfast show presenter in 1980, but he returned to Radio 1 in 1982 in the early evening slot. He took over the lunchtime slot a year later, and at the time of broadcast, he's been the breakfast show presenter, taking over from Mike Reed in May of 1986, and was known as Lady Diana's favourite DJ. (laughs) 
puts over the impression of being a nice enough bloke and I, I can't, you know, haven't found any dirt on him or anything, but 1987, he's the kingpin of Radio 1. Really? Oh, he's just he's just a bloke. The thing is about so many, they're, they're just, you know, history is littered with just blokes. It's not even, you know, it's mm. just, yeah, if you're just a bloke, and this is something that stubbornly endures now, you know, kind of in the form of, like, James Corden or whoever, it's like, just blokes. I'm, I've, I have, I have so little mm. to say about him. He's just a bloke. He's had loads of TV experience, of course, because he's been a regular on BBC's Breakfast Time, and he's been Noel Edmonds' henchman in the Late Late Breakfast Show. Yeah, he was an Edmonds enabler, very much on the wrong side <laughs> of history. But, no, Sarah's right. He's just another straight with a shit haircut and a mm. big ego without even the basic decency to be a freak or a weirdo or, you know, like his predecessors, you know, and give us something to talk about. It's like when the most positive thing you can say about someone is, is that they didn't fuck kids. You know you're mm. not in the presence of greatness, right? The only unique thing about Mike Smith, and it's really unpleasant, is um, the sort of unearned distance that he has from what he does he he's never quite into what he's doing he seems to have mm. nothing but contempt for pop music when you listen to him introducing it he seems to have nothing but contempt for pop music and the people who make it and clearly yeah. considers himself somehow above this absurd clattering circus of top of the pops but he doesn't even communicate that directly, which might at least have been interesting. Um, but rather through this sort of smirking, smug, little purse-lit cynicism, and it's really wearing, and it just makes you think, hang on, what exactly have you ever shown to justify this snootiness? And furthermore, why then are you a daytime Radio 1 DJ? Mm. Well, to do this sort of thing. Oh, yeah, it's like, um, you know, it's this sort of attempted, yeah, you're right, it's this sort of attempted ironic distance and sort of loftiness. But it's like, the thing is, you are not cool. It's like, you're, if you're presenting Top of the Pops, chances are you're, you're not actually, you're not cool. I mean, whatever cool was in 1987, you're probably not it. He couldn't drop it for a second, this sort of snootiness and smugness. Um, I'm pretty sure I remember him going off-piste and playing Suzanne by Leonard Cohen on his radio show once. Um, mm. I'm fairly sure it was him. And it was the first time I'd ever heard Leonard Cohen, right, who I always thought was some sort of joke. And I was into it, this is amazing. I was sat there, transfixed. And then when it finished, he came on and said, that's for all you hippie bank managers out oh. there. Like, oh, fuck <laughs> off. You know, and, and, and yet he was a humorless Puritan at the same time. You know, he yeah. was responsible for um, Radio 1 banning... Some candy talking by the uh, by, I was going to say by the velvet. Anyway, it practically was by the yeah. Jesus and Mary chain. Um, that was him because right he was uh, hip enough to realise that the lyrics were a thinly veiled um, hymn of praise to heroin. Um, right, and yet unhip enough to go to teacher and say we you can't play you can't play this. No, but the idea that this is the man who's captaining the good ship Radio 1 at the minute. You know, he kind of even makes Gary Davis seem a, a bit cool. <laughs> yeah, you look at Gary Davis in this, standing next to him, and uh, he, for the one and only time, he seems like almost a bit of a cool guy because he's not yes. going in for this uh, sort of, <laughs> it's, it's only pop music. He's, you know, yeah. he, at least he seems like he's into it. And 
As far as he's yeah. concerned, hey, it's still the eighties, and so everything's yeah. peachy. You know, he's got some champagne on ice and a, a tanned, moose-haired lady on the rug, and yes. no one cares that he looks like a camel. It's all, <laughs> it's all, it's all good. It's all cool. It's as peachy as his polo shirt, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and, and the the unmatching jacket that he wears over the top of it, with the sleeves hoiked up to the elbow. I mean, one thing I am going to say in Mike Smith's defence that him and Sarah Green were fucking brilliant in Ghost Watch. Yeah, is this not why he now doesn't? Yeah, right. Because you know he doesn't let the BBC repeat his top of the popses. That's right? right. Yeah. So, and it's because in his lifetime he he refused to sign the the form to extend the license. Yeah, the license extension. Yeah. yeah. And after he died, Sarah Green said she was going to respect his wishes and not sign it. You know, on his yeah. behalf. Uh, and I heard a rumour that this is because of how the BBC chucked the two of them under the bus post Ghost Watch, but I don't know really? if it's true. Like, yeah, I don't know if it's true. It's this is sort of Fuck. chatter amongst TV uh, enthusiasts, but I don't know whether mm. it's true. But it's what I do know is that he was mm. on top of the pops all the bloody time in uh, the mid yeah. and late eighties. So this is going to do more damage to the repeats than you tree. So. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for that. So, yes, consequently, you are not going to see this episode or any other episodes that he's in uh, in the BBC Four repeats. And, you know, I think we're going to find out as the show goes on why that's such a good thing. Hi, good evening. Welcome to another Top of the Box. We've got a star-studded show tonight. Madonna, Mick Jagger, Michael Jackson all coming up. We start off with Johnny H. Jazz. I don't want to be a hero. in a rumpled dark suit with a white shirt and no tie, and Davies in a peach polo shirt and jacket made from the carpet as a job centre, <laughs> introduced the first act of the evening, Johnny Hates Jazz. Formed in London in 1985, Johnny Hates Jazz consisted of a songwriter called Clark Daxler, who was the frontman of Hot Club and early 80s band, a studio engineer called Mike Nacito and a producer called Calvin Hayes. They signed to Rack Records and their debut single, Me and My Foolish Heart, was the second to last single to be released by the label. They immediately signed with Virgin and their next single, Shattered Dreams, spent three weeks at number five in May of this year. This is the follow-up and it's up from number 15 to number 11. And I think we're seeing here the dawn yeah. of the suit bands. Oh, dear. Oh, Clark, he's got oh, this belted-off bolero jacket rig out. Yeah, very pleated. And his two mates very have as well. Pleated. Very man at CNA. <laughs> well, don't say that to them, because the thing that I remember most about them at the time, aside from the fact that they struck me as the absolute personification of everything I despised about the moment, is that they were in <laughs> Smash Hits, and Smash Hits said to them, so... Uh, what do you think is new or different or exciting about your group? The clear implication being that the true answer was nothing. And one of them <laughs> said, uh, oh, well, in the past, uh, groups would maybe get a jacket from here and a pair of trousers from here, whereas we're the first group to really present a high fashion image. <laughs> Oh, fuck's sake. See, pop music just keeps oh, moving no. on. It's like there's always oh, progress if you know where to look. 
Yeah. But in fact, they look shit. They look, aside from the fact that they're... Yeah, they really do, shit faces they? are simultaneously smug and sour in their evident prosperity. Yeah. They're like these sort of yeah. pure Docklands, like a building society advert, bland 80s yeah. car, non-people. And that's what they seem to me at the time, and they even more so now. They might have well have called themselves Sales Team. <laughs> that would have been a much better name. Yeah, it is. It is kind yeah. of. I mean, there is a certain there is a certain purity of it in, in its in its absolute blandness. So it's like it's kind of like every song that is ever rejected by every boy band. In mm. fact, there is the bit. Um, the, there's a little kind of half-assed trumpet stab, yeah. and it's like, what's that? And it kicked off something in my brain. It's like, what's that? And I spent the remainder of of the of the song as it as it trailed along, trying to remember what it was. And it's like, oh, it's it only uh, takes a minute. If I take that, and then I just kind of played that in my head over the remaining seconds, and and you know, but it is it's like it's like homeopathic pop. It's like if you told a glass of water about the blow monkeys, <laughs> this is what you get. Yes, but but what a song it is. Um, <laughs> I have to say that you know, being a British band and claiming you're not going to fight in a war in 1987, it's not exactly the most provocative of statesmen, is it? No. It, yeah, yeah, they might as well sing a song about how they're going to refuse to undergo female circumcision. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you look at this bloke and it's like, he said, no, yeah, send me out to war with a gun in my hand. Well, well, I, before he even goes on, you think, oh, God help us, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like there's, you could just imagine him... Uh, you imagine in his pleated uniform uh, telling his sergeant, I won't pull the trigger. And the news gets yeah. to the enemy's field marshal. He claps his hands together and says, now our victory is assured. <laughs> Without yeah. the one they call Clark Datchler, the Allies I, do not I, have I, a prayer. I feel like I need to point out at, at this point, just for my own, you know, uh, just for my, my integrity with, with you, um, even as a callow youth of nine, I had no mm. particular feeling for Johnny Hates Jazz, like either way, which I think is probably the correct response. Um, and the worst response anyone of that age could have against any band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> sorry, sorry, mate. That's but I terrible. Feel bad. I mean, I... no, no, no. Don't apologise. You were no, right. No, I mean, you're on the right side of history <laughs> here, Sarah. <laughs> Thank God. But no, I feel I, I. There is a there is a way in which I feel bad for them because it's like this is the best that they could do. I always feel mm. there's always that twinge of sort of like the melancholy of, of mediocrity. It's just like that's that's it. That was your that was your best shot, and there it is for everyone to see. And you know, in, in fairness to them, Shattered Dreams was the best that they could do, mm. which is about you know two degrees. Yeah, better that, that than is this. correct. Yeah. Uh, also, what pisses me off about this war business, mm. right? Um, Assuming that he didn't join the army voluntarily, yeah. which going on the lyrics about how he won't pull the trigger, he will not commit that murder. Yeah. It's a pretty safe bet. Um, therefore, that means that this hypothet hypothetical war is probably pretty fucking important. Yeah. If they've had to call up the singer out well, of Johnny yeah, how H. How bad would your war have to get before you consider conscripting Johnny H. Jazz? Yeah, in the event of war, they are class 9H. <laughs> but the thing is, he's not... Well, you listen to what he says, he's not even going to be a conchie. He's, uh, no. you know, and make himself useful cleaning toilets for four years. He's, he's going to go all the way there and then mm. refuse to pull the trigger when some mad fascist is bearing down on him. 
right? Which yeah. is that's that's actually the act of a, an enemy agent, the agent of an enemy power. So mm. really, he should have been arrested for this song. Um, yeah, and and shot. Yeah, yeah, court martial because this isn't put him on the wheel. It, basically, this isn't an anti-war song, right? If there's a war going on no. and some and it's a, a bad war and somebody does this song, okay, it's an anti-war song. No, it's a pacifist song, and there's mm. nothing worse than a than a high fashion pacifist. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think I think though he was probably kind of ahead of his time in some way. It's like this is a very twenty first century. This is a very twenty seventeen attitude. It's like no, no, no. You have to debate the fascists. You have to defeat them with your words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all, yeah, but also <laughs> he's got the worst possible rationale because uh, he says uh, he's not. He, he says you're sending me off to this war. Um, quote in a faraway land I never knew mm. existed. Well, that's the giveaway because that's the worst possible reason to not want to fight in a war, right? Like, I'd, I've never heard of it, so fuck them, right? <laughs> yeah. It's an isolationist sort of America first uh, type argument. It's, <laughs> it's, it's the bad, this is, this is the, the real seedy underbelly of anti-war sentiment. Yeah. And you notice that there's three of them, but they've got uh, backup musicians and uh, there's a black guitarist wearing one of those baggy overcoats that people did at the time, which looked even shitter than the suits. And uh, he's particularly keen because he knows that he'd be the first one to die after imploring Johnny H. Jazz to go on without him. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, trying to em- they're trying to emulate black music, but what yes. they end up with is the most anemic albino music that you've ever heard. It's entirely <laughs> without grain or sex, or new sounds, or anything you would ever associate with funk or soul. It's just a like it's like a loping jingle of a song with these little side kicking trumpet fills and it's emulate a bell sounds. And if you want to yeah. hear the only influence that this music has ever had on anyone, uh, ring up N Power and sit there on hold for half an hour. <laughs> All the notes are so close together as well. When you listen to the mm. arrangement, there's no space in this. There's no scope. It's just a clatter. It's just a little neat yeah. clatter. Um, and I hated it then and I hated it now. Wouldn't it have been great if the US military heard this song and go, you know what, this is just what we need to play at fucking General Noriega at really high volume for three oh days. Oh, my God, yeah. That would sort him <laughs> what out. Is it that they, um, what is it that they used in Guantanamo? Wasn't it like White Snake or something? ACDC. Oh yeah, I mean... You can imagine that Noriega sat in there like doing devil lords with his tongue out, like just banging his head. <laughs> yeah, fucking brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so the following week, I Don't Want to Be a Hero dropped to number 14, then went up to number 13 and then slid out the charts. Their one and only LP, Turn Back the Clock, was the first Virgin LP to enter the charts at number one since Nevermind the Bollocks. That was me just banging my head on the table. But the follow-up single of the same name only got to number 12 and diminishing returns set in until the band split up in 1992. Is there anything else anyone wants to say about this? Yeah, I hate the singer's face. I I always have. I remember just as a kid taking an instant massive dislike to him. He looks like his head is made out of Botox. Right? It's like he's 
sculpted out of a block of botulinum toxin. He looks like he's never been outside in his life. And yet, he's deeply discontented. He's got that <laughs> turned-down mouth. Like, it's the wrong year of champagne in the dressing room <laughs> or something. And fucking keyboard player looks like a young Ray Stubbs. And he's not, not cut out for public appearances. And the Ooh. bloke on the bass who... He looks like a an oiled Gary Davis, and he's playing uh, a Macca style Hofner violin bass, <laughs> as if this TV appearance was a bit like the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, um, like the starting pistol for a a new age of freedom and expression. And there's going to be you know kids around the world being sent home from school for <laughs> having that haircut that looks like a bowl of custard's been tipped over. <laughs> Jazz, who's living especially for Nice to be with us tonight. Britain's top pop show brings you Mick Jagger's first performance on Top of the Pops for 17 years. Right now, here's ABC with a night you murdered love. Thanks, Johnny Hates Jazz, for flying in from Nice, where they're presumably hiding out to avoid the draft, and continues to hype the impending performance of Mick Jagger before introducing ABC and The Night You Murdered Love. Formed in Sheffield in 1980 when the synthesizer band Vice Versa were interviewed by the editor of the fanzine Modern Drugs, Martin Fry, and invited him to form a new band, ABC's debut single, Tears Are Not Enough, got to number 19 in November of 1981. They spent 1982 with a run of three top 10 singles and the LP Lexicon of Love, which entered the charts at number one in July of 82 and spent four weeks there. After a year off, they came back in November of 1983 with the LP Beauty Stab, which only got to number 12. After various lineup changes, disappointing chart returns and Martin Fry being sidelined with Hodgkin's lymphoma, ABC, now a duo consisting of Fry and Mark White, roared back with the LP Alphabet City and the single When Smokey Sings, which got to number 11 in July of this year. This is the follow-up, and it's up this week from number 39 to number 31. It's quite sad to see, isn't it? Yeah. It's like the, they were one of the greatest groups of the early 80s, and you sort of think, oh, what we have lost. You're watching a group as smart and capable as ABC effectively trying to be as much like Johnny Hates Jazz as possible. Yeah. yeah. Because their aesthetic involved, or part of it involved being up to date and of the moment. But they don't, they no longer have enough in the tank to help define the moment. And so the moment has sunk them. And here they are. And the only sign of their mischievous intelligence is they got some of the backing musicians dressed as cub scouts mm. and if that's all you've got it's 1987 and you're wasting your time yeah because i mean if you wanted to say you know what was the difference between good 80s and bad 80s you could just take this song and compare it to the look of love couldn't you yeah all the drama and fever and life has just drained away 
Sarah, what did ABC mean to you at the time? Oh, um, I, anything? They kind of not really. No, I hadn't. Um, I hadn't kind of clocked them. They sort of passed me by at this point. So um, yeah, I didn't. I mean, they were actually one of the first gigs that I saw when I moved to London and started being a music journalist in uh, in '99. Right. So a long time later, um, and that was uh, yeah. I saw them at the Embassy Rooms on Tottenham Court Road, uh, a venue which is uh, oh. last time I looked was uh, a strip club. Which oh lovely! I guess that's the same. This is uh, that's kind of a beautiful metaphor for what we're talking about, really. It's like uh, yeah, yeah, this that, is that was then. This is now. This is the way of things. You know, it's there is there is invention and beauty, and then there's just knickers. Yeah. Or or not actually, I don't know. Just <laughs> I haven't been to a strip club in a long time. Don't know what they do now. Yeah. So Fry and White in suits, of course, are backed by female singers in yellow headscarves and gloves, looking a bit like Magenta Divine. And, as Taylor's pointed out, an assortment of musicians dressed as Cub Scouts. What's wrong with this performance? Is it is it the song or is it the actual, you know, performance? Uh, the song just goes round in circles. It's like it's it sounds like ABC, but yeah. if you sort of took out the good bit, um, and yeah, Martin Fry's hair is so bad. And his suit <laughs> is so 1987, and yet his soul is so 1983. It won't mm. hold together. Uh, yeah. And, I mean, it's another reason why I hate the late 80s, actually, because I used to go into a hairdresser asking for a haircut like WB Yates or something. Um, they'd do it, <laughs> and they'd do it like this. They'd do it like yeah. Martin Fry's hair here. Because at any given point in history, hairdressers only know five haircuts. Mm. And they take your instructions. They do a quick calculation to see which of those five seems closest to what you want. And then they just do that one. Um, yeah. Also, it's daring of Mark White to turn up with that national resophonic mm. guitar. Because in 1987, that was practically the corporate yes. logo of Dire Straits, wasn't it? I mean, he's mm. playing with fire there, really. <laughs> and we get a sweep of the audience uh, at one point, and uh, all I could see was a lot of nasty perms all fusing and tangling together. Really bad. Bad time to be a woman uh, in 1987, I think. Yeah, you can really sort of smell the, smell the, um, the L'Oreal L-Net can't you? It's just mm. kind of like a, a fug of it. Um, yeah. Kind of, yeah, caught by the lights, yeah. And the, the crispiness of <laughs> yes. the, of the oh, gel hell, as yeah. well. Uh, fucking yeah. hell. Around, I think a couple of years previously, I was trying to gel my hair back like Paul Weller, and it would last about like an hour and a half in the, in the hot sun before it just yeah. started uncurling itself and just sticking up. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, Paul Weller had probably bought some expensive product from, you know, some London... Or he used Brill Cream. Yeah, well, exactly, or Brill Cream. Was what were you using, like, Studio Line? Yeah. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it basically turns your hair into, like, you know, like a, a, a masturbation tissue. Yes. <laughs> it's that, that awful texture. Yeah. Um, I should have gone with Brill Cream, because that's what Paul Weller probably used, but I just didn't... Want my head to smell like my dad. <laughs> <laughs> but Martin Fry, once again, he's returning to his old theme of um, taking a relationship breakup really fucking badly. He, he never yeah. says, oh, me and my girlfriend have decided to go on a break or we've decided we're not right for each other. It's, oh, yeah, she shot a poison arrow through my heart or she's murdered love. Yeah. You okay, hon? Yeah. 
Yeah, he he goes around with some really violent girls, Martin Fry. If he keeps having these relationships that crash and burn, maybe he's the problem. Mm. Yeah, sooner or later you you have to look at this pattern and uh, <laughs> ask yourself some difficult questions. You know, at some point, we all have to do this. And I would say convalescing after a bout of Hodgkin's lymphoma would have been the ideal time to do that. Um, yeah. But clearly, no, he was just reading comics. <laughs> so the following week, The Night You Murdered Love stayed at number 31 and would go no further. The follow-up, King Without a Crown, stalled at number 44 at the end of the year and they would have one more top 40 hit before breaking up in 1992. Martin Fry, of course, continues to tour and record under the ABC name, hopefully in a better suit. Now, if you miss Madonna on a recent tour, here's a chance to see her in action again. Recorded live in Turin. She's at number four in the charts with Causing a Commotion. On a balcony surrounded by an assortment of girls who have been lacerated with the bad 80s stick and a gormless lad with a private pike side parting who mouths the words wow and fab offers comfort for us who missed Madonna's recent UK tour as he introduces causing a commotion. Madonna, this woman again. We've already covered Madonna in chart music's 2, 7 and 12 so we'll just say that this is the follow-up to Who's That Girl, which became a fifth number one hit in July of this year and is another cut from the soundtrack of the film of the same name. It was the highest new entry last week at number seven and it's nudged up this week to number four. As Davis has pointed out, we're being treated to a clip from the Turin performance of the Who's That Girl tour, which was recorded three weeks previously. Yeah, Madonna, she's kind of like, she's up there with the three degrees and show waddy wadda in the people we fucking talk about every fucking episode. So, thankfully... Did you notice Shakey's in the charts as well this yes, week? Yes, he is. Yeah, we managed managed to dodge yeah, him. Yeah, with the cover of Come See About Me. He's dropped Elvis. He, he wants to be Diana Ross now. Uh, Sarah, you were a nine-year-old girl. Madonna. Yeah, I mean, she Must was... mean a bit more to you than it did to us. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, um, you know, Fuzzbox were kind of my, um, I, I felt like they were, you know, they were sort of British and Larry and stuff. So I, I felt a bit more of a connection. I mean, Madonna was just sort of a, this this incredible American alien creature, you know, and mm. especially, I mean, there was always a kind of a double edged thing when uh, Top of the Pops showed you a bit of a, a bit of a concert because they couldn't get the person in the studio. It's always, mm. you know, it's, it's a little bit disappointing because you, you want to see them, you want to see them kind of awkwardly um, flapping about in the, in the, um, in the in the studio under the neon and the mm. spotlights, but it's also really or see the video. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, exactly. But it it's a bit. I mean, this is not you know this is an extremely forgettable Madonna song and and not the most spectacular bit of footage. But mm. it's still and I don't remember seeing this episode when I when when I was nine. But it's that kind of who you know it, it is like they they've kind of that it is like a sort of portal into another 
dimension where everything is um, more exciting and more something. So I think at the time, I mean, because I, I, I knew her already from, you know, sort of her early stuff. I really loved... Um, I really loved Into the Groove and I loved Borderline and I really loved Live to Tell. What album is that? I don't know. Um, but I still find, like, I, I, there's stuff, some of her early stuff I still find so kind of mysterious and, and kind of haunting. It's like wandering into Marilyn Monroe's bedroom or something. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't remember being, you know, a big fan of her at this point, but, you know, she was definitely, I, I really love the fact that, um, you know, she was a... Um, a mononym as well it's like this is the only just having that ha- that awareness that it's somebody so famous that they only have one name like bungle <laughs> <laughs> but uh, i mean uh, she was known as, as as being all about the sex um mm. so was that a problem to your parents that what did they think about madonna i mean my my mum was was uh you know she was a young mum i don't think she really uh she didn't really have a problem with it. I do. I do distinctly recall the the jiggly boobs controversy over the uh, Papa Don't Preach video because she like didn't have a bra and she's sort of leaping about jiggling. But I I don't recall it being. I mean, you don't you don't have you don't mm. have a map at that age, do you? You know, it's like it's it's um, you you don't you kind of you don't know what you're looking at. I just that there is just that slight sense of something no. being a bit naughty and a bit diver, you know, a little bit. Um, you know, so there is that sort of exciting thing when you realise that people around you are sort of getting a bit perturbed about something. Mm. It's like, yeah, this is great. And I just thought, you know, I I liked, you know, she made herself, um, she made herself interesting all the time. You know, she changed her hair all the time. She changed what she was, she changed what she was wearing all the time, and she was this very powerful presence. And like I said, there was this sort of alien element to her because she wasn't she wasn't, she wasn't from here. Um, <laughs> you wouldn't you'd get short shrift down the pub looking like that. Um, so yeah, I've you know I was I was I was pro. So Madonna's wearing a gold lame jacket over a black corset and Sinbad trousers combination with gold trim edging, and she's she's essentially arsing about on a travelator and chucking herself about a bit, isn't she? Yeah, this this stage set looks like Mario Brothers, or no, it looks like <laughs> it looks like the second stage of Donkey Kong. Because there's like right, different yes. layers of girders, and one of which is a, a conveyor belt. So she should mm. have had giant custard pies moving along it. And, Barrels. Yeah, and a couple of big handbags. Um, yeah. No, this, yes. this was the age of thing, is though, the 80s. That was one, if it was one thing the 80s were good for, it was girders. Just fucking yes. girders everywhere you looked. Yeah. It's great. It's a nice industrial aesthetic, you know, that had survived even into the kind of wastelands of 1987. Yeah, she carried that into her image as well, because this was the point that I remember at the time, she stopped being sort of glamorous and and sexy and she changed her image to be quite butch with the sort of Mm. cropped hair and baggy pants and the muscles and stuff and you know that's pretty Mm. cool but it went with a change in the music where all the voluptuousness and sensuality that was in her best records and I don't think there were that many of them but there were a few was sort of lopped off along with the the long hair you know and all the melody went with it and it all became quite functional and hard and grinding. And there was nothing sort of confrontational or transgressive to justify the change. It was just, it was like her old records without the tune. Um, It's like a lot of records from this period, it's just a rhythm track with a sort of like a a chanted uh, 
tune over the top of it and the rhythm isn't bad you know it's just it's quite routine if you're going to make a record that's just about the rhythm track it has to really move or it has to sound yeah. fresh and startling or it has to sound like pure sex or something whereas this is just mm. busy and empty at the same time and yeah hawks back quite a lot to into the groove doesn't it yeah like without the the, the lovely tune that makes that probably her best mm. record uh, and also the, the singing is terrible because she's dancing and singing at the same yeah. time and you know fair play to her for not miming but it it's not yeah. a very nice result she should have just mimed because who would have cared who was her crowd um gay men and yeah. kids basically and <laughs> two groups of people who don't give a shit if you go out there and mime as long as you put on a good show um, I don't know mm. who she was trying to impress. She does actually um, invoke into the groove. It's uh, it's there in the lyrics. Um, she she just uh, yeah, which is which is probably not the right idea if you're going to do a forgettable song and mention your one of your most memorable ones. Like people are just going to think of it and go, oh, I'd like to be listening to that right now, but I'm not. You're just saying the words. There's some but- really bad lighting decisions as well because. At one point, she's swathed in a sort of green cast like the late grot bags. <laughs> it's, yes. not, it's not a good look at all. There's a bit where she's in front of a curtain and the curtain is like snagged on something. It doesn't come all the way to the ground. And if you look at the gap between the curtain and the ground, you can see these feet. Uh, <laughs> and it's what looks like a bloke's bare leg with a white sock and a brown <laughs> shoe. Like she's got a hiker. <laughs> <laughs> like there's a hiker playing keyboards, but she's had to put him behind a curtain because he keeps up staging her. Like the the lasers keep reflecting off the tin cup that's hanging off his belt. But the lyrical content uh, of of this song, uh, unsurprisingly, yeah, there's a bloke uh, presumably with a quiff with his shirt off uh, who Madonna's taken a fancy to, and she's uh, yeah, she she's putting the moves on on him. But to be honest, causing a commotion, right? It's 1987. What commotion is this? Well, right, yeah, by, this, this is what by I was 1987, thinking. the only commotion was a dopey husband thumping photographers yeah. and all the accountants running around because of the, the terrible losses made by all those shit films that she was yes. in. Like, so in 1987, Lloyd Cole and the commotions were causing more of a commotion. <laughs> it's quite prim for, for, uh, for Madonna. It's like, oh, a bit of a, ooh, bit of a kerfuffle. Yeah. Oh, set the apple cart. Yeah. <laughs> what would causing a commotion mean to, to you at the time, Sarah? Like, I don't know, they, they'd be kicking bins over in the shopping <laughs> centre or something. Probably, you know, having having some sort of nice party where they might make slightly too much noise. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But tin, you know, something might get knocked over a bit. But you know, put their new CD player on. Yeah. Or maybe maybe they would run through. There was a lot of running through the streets in videos at the time. Just you know, yeah. there, there would be there would be the the amazing sexy people running through the streets, and and then people uh, the the non amazing non sexy people kind of peering out of the doors and, and making faces at them you know so probably yeah. probably that sort of thing really has anyone seen the film who's that girl no, literally no one i think yeah that was the problem at the time i think yeah mm. no no me neither yeah. i'm sure I toss. i'm sure if we did see it there'd be even more to slag off so yeah. maybe, <laughs> by the way the funniest bit in this clip i almost forgot is right at the end where it goes uh she says i've got the moves baby and then there's a little break while she does this sort of spasming yeah. idiot dance, like as if some, oh, it's as, awful, as if somebody's isn't it? tased her. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. Oh, it's like your dad having to go body popping at Christmas or something. 
Yeah, it wasn't. Well, it wasn't very savoury, was it? Anyway, I'm really, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really grateful to you guys for, uh, you know, I only wish you'd been there at the time to kind of tell me that everything that I liked was was really not worth bothering about. <laughs> I could have saved myself much time you, and, and. You've anguish. got to learn for yourself, Doc. Oh, you've man. got to learn for yourself. Next time, can we get into what Taylor liked when he was nine? Actually, sorry to disappoint you. It would have been Adam and the Ants and uh, oh, Madness. Fuck off, Taylor. So yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, thirteen though, Marillion. <laughs> So the following week, causing a commotion, dropped one place to number five. Fucking hell, Top of the Pops is doing no one any favours this week, is it? And it's not doing us any favours, actually, so fuck it. The follow-up, The Look of Love, got to number nine in December of this year, and she wasn't seen in the charts again until March of 1989 when Like a Prayer got to number one. The film Who's That Girl made $10 million less than even Shanghai Surprise and won Worst Picture and gave Madonna her second of three Worst Actress Awards at the Golden Raspberries. Madonna in concert, that sounds slightly better when it's in key. And now let's have a look at this week's Top 40. Linda Ronstadt and James Ingram somewhere out there down to number 40. A new entry at 39 for Heart and Who Will You Run To? There's a funky town at number 38, it's Pseudo Echo on the way down. And down at 37, Michael Jackson, I Just Can't Stop Loving You. Whitney Houston, didn't we almost have it all? She did, but she's down to 36. Down at 35, David Bowie, Never Let Me Down. Second new entry is for Shaky, Come See About Me is in at 34. New entry at 33, Full Metal Jacket, Abigail Mead and Nigel Goulding. Then Jericho with the motive, that one's down 10 at 32. A beta 31, ABC, The Night You Murdered Love. You got the look, Prince and Sheena Easton at number 30 going down. Call me, down at 29, it's Spania. Those happy house martins, me and the farmer, they are going down at 28. Down at 27, it's Squeeze and Hourglass. Jokeable Gary Newman, Cars and Our Friends Electric, that one's going up at 26. Down at 25, Stop to Love, Luther Vandross. Wax have a bridge to your heart and they're on the way down at 24. Up to at 23, The Communards, tomorrow. Jacques Lafrique, that's chic, they're going up at 22. Down at 21, Wet, Wet, Wet and Sweet Little Mystery. There's a deaf leopard hanging around at number 20, pour some sugar on me. Up 17 to 19, Yan Hammer and Crockett's theme. Still at number 18, Jonathan Butler with Lies. Down at 17, Wonderful Life from Black. Up 10 at 16, I Need Love, LL Cool J. Down at 15, Pet Shop Boys and Dusty Springfield, What Have I Done to Deserve This? And look at this, a toy boy at number 14 with Sunita. Down at 13, You Two, Where the Streets Have No Name. And there's a Casanova at number 12, that's Lavette. And up four to number 11, Johnny Hates Jazz, I Don't Want to Be a Hero. Here's a guy who's got a big part in Miami Vice, not as an actor, but he writes the music for the series. In fact, so far he's written over 100 original songs for Miami Vice. One of those songs is the biggest climber on the chart this week. At number 19, here's Yan Hammer, Crockett's theme.
Pip takes time to point out that Madonna is pretty ropey live and cowers behind Davis, who introduces the first three quarters of this week's. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Top 40. That was a bit catty of him, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. Well, well, it's not the pro- the problem. Isn't that he said that sounded like cat shit, which is you know fair enough because mm. yeah. But it's the fact that he then put his arms up and did that sort of what? No, don't attack mm. me. I can't help the fact that I'm so controversial. Yeah, sort of, you know, like <laughs> the top forty rundown, which is from number forty to number eleven. Um, the quality of the band pictures have improved since last we spoke about this, haven't they, Taylor? Yeah, well, they're using they're, they're using proper publicity shots now in their original yeah. aspect ratio uncropped yes well done well done bbc it wasn't hard was it and uh, as as we always do at this time of the show taylor any songs in there that you didn't know um pseudo echo uh yeah i only remember their name because i saw it at the time and thought that is the worst name that i've ever seen um and i've yeah. probably seen worse since but it's bad isn't it pseudo echo yeah. That is that is pretty bad. I think it's bad also. The thing is, whenever you encounter a really bad band name, uh, you imagine that the moment when they hit on it, don't you? And you imagine their little mm. faces kind of going, that's so good and so clever. Like well, I'm sure that happened with Johnny Hates Jazz as well. Like, God, you yeah. Imagine they went, oh, my God, guys, I've got it. <laughs> and, you know. Yeah. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but it's just like, yeah, you know that somebody thought that was clever. Yeah, you imagine Sue Echo yeah. sitting around going, well, we're Sudi. And we're a pale echo of music that's gone before. It's it's perfect. And the, and the rundown, I think the j- thing that jumped out at me was what was Mike Smith saying about Gary Newman? Jokeable Gary Newman, was yeah, it? Yeah, I, I couldn't make Ed or Taylor that either. I thought at first, jo- listen, jokeable. Well, yeah, I thought yeah. it sounded like he was saying Gary Newman is a joke, which in 1987 right. he sort of was. But that, he didn't clearly didn't say that word for word. So yeah, I I played no. it over and over again, which was. Something I never thought I'd ever do. <laughs> Listen to Mike Smith saying the same thing about ten times. And I, no, I had no idea what he was talking about. Born in Prague in 1948, Jan Hammer studied piano at the Prague Academy of Musical Arts, but then fucked off out of it in 1968 when the Russians sent tanks in. 
After recording a jazz LP in Munich, he settled in America, finished his studies in Boston, and joined the original lineup of the Mahavishnu Orchestra, becoming one of the first keyboardists to get stuck into a moog. He commenced a solo career in 1975 and then formed his own group and closed out the 70s working with Jeff Beck, where one of his tracks, Star Cycle, became the original theme tune for The Tube. After knocking out soundtracks for three films in the early 80s, he approached the TV producer Michael Mann with a track that he'd been working on and suggested it might work for his next production, Miami Vice, and in October of 1995 it got to number five in the UK charts. This is a follow-up to that theme and was used whenever Sonny Crockett was having a bit of a sulk on his yacht, feeding chunks of meat to his pet alligator Elvis and thinking about what a fucking waste of time and resources the war on drugs was. And it's up this week from number 36 to number 19. Now, this isn't what you'd expect someone called Jan Hammer to look like, is it? He looks like Sam Kinison if he took his hat off. Yes, he does. And and chilled out a bit. Well, a lot. (laughs) He's actually the spit of my ex-boss, who was the editor of Penthouse and Reader's Wives, uh, who was who was obsessed with white cotton M&S drawers and was the last British person to ever use the word panties. Oh, the stories I've got about that, man. I was basically sitting next to somebody, uh, this woman who I'd, I'd just got to know and we're working together, and... Uh, Jan Hammer came up to her with a pair of knickers and said, oh, there you go, uh, I'll see you in 10 minutes. And she she went, oh, all right then, and then she went off. And then she came back, you know, about 10 minutes later, um, kind of walking with some difficulty with a different pair of knickers in her hands. And uh, Jan came over and uh, took them off over and went, oh, that's lovely, I'll, I'll get them sent off right away. And I looked at this, this other bloke on the table and I said, what the fuck was that about? And... Uh, he told me that Jan Hammer had put an advert in one of the magazines where if you sent in £10 and a clean pair of knickers uh, you, and a stamped dress envelope, you'd get a, a dirty pair of knickers back. Man alive. I think, actually, we should probably clarify for legal reasons that you're not actually talking about Jan Hammer. No, I'm not talking about <laughs> Jan Hammer. I'm talking about the bloke who looks like Jan Hammer, whose name I'm not going to mention because I don't want to get sued by him either. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, there was one day that uh, a couple of days later he came in waving a wadge of £10 notes out of the mail and making the loads of money gesture. And it, it turned out that his latest advert had got so many responses, he didn't he couldn't get enough knickers in time. So he actually went home and raided uh, the laundry basket and took his <laughs> wife's drawers. Oh. So who, would ever, who would ever have thought, reading those old... Uh, those old dirty mags that the there was anything up with any of these compositions <laughs> and that any anything in the in the magazine was not actually a hundred percent true. It's uh, shocking. But yeah, and and so consequently, while watching this performance, I half expect Yang Hammer to fucking pull a pair of drawers out from under his keyboard and hold them to his face. <laughs> Can we talk about Jan Hammer now? I'm I'm kind of getting slightly uh, distant. Yeah, I think we need to. I'm sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry for everyone. that. I had to get it off my chest. Um, so I was going to say the thing that this was a, a top of the pops thing is that you'd get somebody who was doing an instrumental or or doing you know, and you just feel immediately sort of tense and you feel sorry for them because like, oh no, what are you going to do? You're just going to have to. And this is exactly how I felt watching this. It's just like, mm. oh no, look at poor old Jan Hammer standing yeah. there looking like Al's ex-boss just kind of, you know, being awkward behind the keyboard. And then, and then, he starts getting (laughs) really into it. 
and he looks so happy. Look at him. He's yeah. like, I'm getting a, I'm, I look, yeah. I've got two keyboards. I've got a really lovely kind of 1987 monitor with, 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 you know, a green display on it. And I'm getting, I'm going to turn around now. Listen, I'm going to press this key and it's going to sound like a guitar. Check it out. Yeah. And it's like, I have blown my own fucking mind. This yeah. is brilliant. I'm Jan Hammer. I'm on top of the pops. I mean, you could say that is a man. That is a man who loves his work. I mean, yes. you, might think, you, you might go, look, it's, you know, you might say it's shit work. But, I mean, haven't you seen, you know, a man whose work is unblocking drains, walking along with a spring in his step, having just pulled a fatberg out of a sewer? You know, doesn't your heart soar to see someone in their element like that? And, you know, also, I don't hate this either. I mean, this is like, it's, it's very soothing to me. I do remember this when it, when it came out. I'd, I'd never seen my, I think my advice probably was on too late at night for me or whatever. But, um, oh, you wouldn't have been allowed at nine. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I, don't, I definitely, I, I, I don't remember. I don't remember seeing it, but. It was on stupid, it was on about, on about half ten at night, wasn't it? But, uh, yeah, this is like, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because, because I put in my notes, this is like, uh, you know, this is soothing to me. It's like panpipes, and then I realised actually it does sound it does sound quite new age. Oh. Just imagine imagine this on panpipes with a bit of mandolin. Mm. It's basically it's like a relaxation track. Yeah. That's probably what he did it as. He probably did it to you know, just to to kind of send himself off to sleep. You know, going, I'm I'm at the end of another great day as Jan Hammer, and now now I put my head on the pillow. What yeah. will tomorrow bring? Everything's great. <laughs> yeah, the terrible the terrible thing about this is that this is the best record that's been on so far by quite some distance. <laughs> yeah, uh, and it's true the sounds on it are really dated, but they they don't sound like the worst sounds of nineteen eighty seven that are so cold and and remote. They sound chunky and warming, and it's a genuinely nice tune. Uh, except for the bit where it goes a bit too Scottish. <laughs> it's like little Jan with his, mm. uh, his fife and drum. But, but, <laughs> but the, the sound of this record makes me warm to the aesthetic of Miami Vice uh, much more than the program mm. ever could, with all those silhouetted palm trees and, you know, pink skies. And yeah. stuff. But it's also very Euro. When you divorce it in your mind from... Of course. Uh, from Miami Vice, it's got a real Euro sound to it. You can really hear his roots, which I think is 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 why it's quite good in a way. Although, to me, really, I know this better from the uh, Nat West advert from ninety one or something with that little guy yeah. who looked like Owen Jones working in Nat West, and he says, uh, "Of course we do. It's not all work, 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 you know." Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And also, you know, um, Oasis ripped this off. I only realised when I was listening Did to they? it. Did they? Yeah, you know, um, Supersonic by Oasis. Mm. That bit where it goes... Uh, it's, Fucking it's hell, this. yes. It's the tune from this. Is, is <sighs> it? Yeah. Is it I mean, really? it, it may well have been a, a subconscious steal. Um, or at least one that he was going to keep quiet about, but mm. it is—it's the—it's almost exactly the same tune. <laughs> Amazing. I ate Miami Vice. I mean, I <laughs> fucking hated it at the time, and I like one of my all-time favorite TV shows is The Professionals, right? Yes. And Miami Vice is basically The Professionals shunted ten years forward in time mm. and relocated to sunny Florida 
which yeah. I think is why I hate it so much. Oh, it's, man. Even at the time, I just thought, no, they look like cunts. We were supposed to think <laughs> that these fucking coppers, basically, there's a couple of coppers dressed like the mid-80s Roger Waters. We were supposed <laughs> to think they were cool guys, you know. Mm. So, no, look, they're Americans, and they, they bust drug dealers. I was 15 years old. I've been waiting half a decade to get my hand on some drugs, you know. And these cunts are <laughs> taking them away. And I was supposed to be like, yeah, nice Ray-Bans, dude. No, fuck them. I was yeah. reading the, the doors of perception and trying to work out new flight paths out of straight society. And I turned <laughs> on the telly, these fucking narcissistic authoritarians setting the standard for what's now cool and, and sexy. And it's like, no. Mm -hmm. And also, I tried to watch one a few years ago to see if with the, you know, diluted with... Uh, nostalgia or anti-nostalgia uh, maybe it would be entertaining and it's not it's not mm. it's just it's all pastel and fuzz like yeah. everything else from this period the um, theme tune's the best thing about it isn't it yeah the, yeah, the yeah. Jan Hammer was by far the most talented person associated with that programme the only mm. positive influence that programme ever had is on certain instalments of the Grand Theft Auto series yes and beyond that, it can just get fucked forever. So the following week, Crockett's theme soared up to number six and got as high as number two, held off the top spot by You Win Again by the Bee Gees. However, the follow-up, Tubbs and Valerie, would only get to number 84 in December of this year. Jan Hammer's next score was for the advert where Bob Geldof has a morning jog and robs a pint off a milk float. And his biggest hit was solid in 1991 when it was used in a series of adverts by Nat fucking West. Jan Hammer was, now I know. And now, this week's Top of the Pops, Top 40 Breakers. Let's go, Gary. And up nine places to number 26, remixed and re-released, here's Gary Newman and Cars. practically saying fucking hell Jan Hammer looks like Al Needham's pervy ex-boss Smith introduces the top 40 breakers essentially a device to bung in some videos from acts who can't be asked to pitch up at the top of the pop studios first up is Cars by Gary Newman born Gary Webb in 1958 Gary Newman picked out a new surname from the Yellow Pages in 1978 and formed Tubeway Army with his uncle on drums their second single, Our Friends Electric, got to number one for four weeks in the summer of 1979, and his next release was this song. <laughs> <laughs> 
cause. We spent a week at number one in September of that year. He then embarked on a run of 10 top 40 hits until 1983, but it would be another three years before he made it again with This Is Love and I Can't Stop in 1986. This is a remix of Cars, known as the E-Reg Model Remix, which was put out to coincide with the release of his first official Greatest Hits compilation, Exhibition. But we're getting the original video here, and it's gone up this week from number 35 to number 26. Now, is this me, or is this the most modern-sounding tune on the whole show? Yeah, yeah it's... Uh, again, it's, oh, what we have lost. But also, this... is it Just to spoil it a bit, this remix is like... It's actually a demix, and it sort of yeah, thaws out the sound. And yeah, and it adds a sort of snap and a thump, which it didn't really need. Um, no. But even so, we're still just seeing... Even seeing this old dope, you know, in his strip-like pyramid and his uh, yes. his hair, his hair made out of man-made fibres, you're still reminded of how recent it really was. Yeah, uh, that time when when genuine madness and uh, apocalyptic awkwardness and non-neurotypical distance could still be number one and celebrated yeah. and embraced just like anything else. Uh, the only problem with Newman is that he was always so unconvincing as an alien. Just yes. physically, that's his trouble. Because you look at him, there's only one place in the universe he could possibly have come from, which is somewhere just outside London. Yes. He's, got, he's got that look about him. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of remix nonsense going on at this time, wasn't it? I mean, we've got Sheik and Jack LaFrique in the charts at the moment, which I was going to listen to, but I just... My hand hovered over the fucking play button and God stayed my hand. I just thought, no, nothing good's going to come from me listening to this. Yeah, I do remember, yeah, when um, people could, uh, people kind of discovered that remixes were a thing and they went a bit, they went a bit daft. There's kind of mm. Shep Pettibone remixes of everything. And uh, it was just, a mm. lot of it was just like the same. <laughs> it was just this great childishness about it where you would just get, we'll put that in for the sake of putting it in. And I don't know, have, um, and, and we'll yeah. distort this, and we'll bend this a bit, and then we'll bend it back again. And uh, it's it's like, are you, you know, yeah. it's like, so you were so preoccupied with whether or not you could, you didn't stop to think if you should. Yes, exactly. Yeah, don't you think, though, the best thing about Newman, like apart from the keyboard sound on his early hits, is the way that he sort of takes his own tiny anxieties and paranoias and pumps them up to an a, a absurd near operatic scale which is like the essence of one particular kind of rock and roll it's like it's like chris needham is the version uh, that grows wild you know manslaughter yes. 1992 version was the it, it, that's what grows in the wild whereas newman is like a a laboratory version of that like if you know they took that like tree bark and went into a lab and made it into aspirin <laughs> and it comes out perfectly round and perfectly white and a hundred percent purified and that's it's the same process on this right i had a mate who was a numenoid when i was at school um and when in the 90s uh, there was a Gary Newman tribute album came out there was a launch party for it that Gary Newman went to and i 
thought, well, I've got to take my mate. So I rang him up and, you know, he wasn't quite such a Newmanoid as he used to be. But I said, you've got to come, come to Gary Newman's launch. And he was, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he went along, got really drunk on the free booze. And then he saw Gary Newman standing in the corner. And he went over to Gary Newman and he said, Gary, Gary, I've got to tell you, you were, you were a really big part of my youth. And Gary Newman said, oh, thanks very much. And he said, but I don't hate you. <laughs> wow so the following week cars jumped up to number 16 where it stayed for two weeks his biggest hit in five years it was his last solo top 20 hit until march of 1996 when he got to number 17 with another remix of cars well, hey, hey, hey now, what do you say? It's 16 this week, LL Cool J. So tell me how your tour is going. Tour's doing good, you know what I'm saying? It's real successful, you know, we sell a lot of tickets. It's just it's real hectic, you know what I'm saying? Interviews, girls calling me all the time. Yo, hell, we got crazy. Go, man. Nah, see what I mean? I'm my little girl today. Oh, all right. Listen, what I tell you about these rap guys, huh? Yeah, look, I'm not taking any more out of my hand. Born James Todd Smith in New York in 1968, LL Cool J was the second rapper signed to Def Jam at the age of 16. He appeared in the film Crush Groove and he released the label's first LP, Radio, in 1985. Despite putting himself about as the archetypal MC who was living kind of foul who went about thinking it was summer, he was also not shy in bringing out his sensitive side. And against the wishes of label owner Rick Rubin, he put this song on his second LP, Bigger and Deffer. This is the second release from that LP and the follow-up to I'm Bad, which got to number 71 in July of this year, and it's up from number 26 to number 16. Men have feelings too. May LL share his with you. So Mike Smith, the insufferable cock, chooses to introduce this by doing what he thinks is a rap. Mm. Um, But it's just a smooth black voice. Yes. And it's really... uh, The cringe is, uh, is, is hard to put into words. I mean, this is a hilarious record. Yes. But... It's not made any funnier by some middle-class cunt from Romford trying to ridicule it and not even getting the style right. Yeah, um, because because to, to people like Smith, rap is just some some American lads talking, and it's a bit of a cod, isn't it? It's like, well, hey, baby, baby. Yes. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. That's what they yeah. do, isn't it? No. Yeah. No. My style is keen. I'm shagging Sarah Green. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> well, this is this is kind of a low point for just everything, isn't it? Though mm. I mean, I I um you know because I had some uh, I think I had some vague whiff of what hip hop was at this age, mm. but but yeah. and so it's like even then I thought you know with my 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 scant knowledge it's like this ain't this isn't right you know mm. this is not really how it's supposed to be this isn't really the idea. This isn't yeah. what you're, you know. I mean, it's like, bless them. There's just the, the most amazing couplets in there. 
You can scratch my back, we can get cosy and huddle. I'd lay down my jacket so you can walk over a puddle. Yeah. Yeah, like you fucking would, L.O. That's bullshit. It's not going to happen. He's lying. No. Um, No, he really isn't. Um, there's, I really, I really do enjoy this type of epic video, which is basically a short film that dips in and out of the track and kind of uses the track. Yes. Out. But it is not a good example of that. No. It's, also, it's quite disturbing. I don't remember this. There's actually like a horrible domestic that happens. Yeah. You know, there's like a, there's this couple having a horrible fight. And, or is it, I don't know, is it... Um, that's no, it's dad. Is that, is yeah, that, that's dad, the dad. Yeah. Oh, that's the dad, yeah, it's not the couple. Um, but yeah, so, and he's like ripping the poster off the wall. And it's, it's, yeah. quite, it's quite jarring, actually. It's like, oh, oh, my God. And then, you know, obviously she goes and kind of runs away with him, so... Yeah, um, well, her, her dad's not having that shit no. on the wall. Her uh, dad's going, look, I like Rock the Bells, but this is just pure shit. Yes, this is, this is <laughs> whack. I fucking hated this song. It went against my hardcore ghetto sensibilities. There was this girl at college who uh, I, I was kind of um, flirting with and uh, it was all going really well until she came up to me one day and said, you like hip-hop, don't you? And I said, yeah. And she says, oh, I've got this Hello. really... Jay Cool. <laughs> and I, and I, I just I had to walk away. I remember when this came out and all the hip hop because there was a load of hip hop fans at my school, and mm. they all tried to pretend that he was still hard as hell. Right? Yes, as if like this was actually really good. Uh, and Battle anybody, he don't care what you tell. Yeah, it's like as if like you must be missing something if you don't mm. like this record. Um, mm. But I mean. You know, I loved those early LL Cool J because I had radio on tape and I liked it yeah. precisely because it was so unmusical and pure yeah. and yeah. sort of amoral in every respect, including yes. musically. Um, this stuff, it's just the same as that. It's not smooth like a soul no. record. It's just as basic and unsophisticated mm. as Rock the Bells. But on Rock the Bells, that's the, the record's main strength. Whereas on this, it it just makes it sound kind of infantile. It's the this sounds like that sort of semi competent stuff that um, weirdo amateurs put up on YouTube. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is that after all these years? Yeah. Also, also I could never get over the Kangol hat, which whichever way you slice it, looks fucking stupid. It's like a village idiot hat, right? Or uh, yeah, or Windy Miller. He looks like he's a, yeah. about to drink a, a flagon of cider <laughs> and go to sleep behind a barn. I was so desperate to have one of those at this time. And I actually found one in a shop and I thought, I've got to try this on. And I couldn't even bring myself to do that because I knew I would look such a cock. Yeah, they look like a wicket keeper. Yeah. But the video, um, it's LL, you know, being tempted with all the things that a, a rap career can offer, which is like basically loads of booze and big cars and fat arses. <laughs> no, take take your ass away. Yes. I don't want any ass today. <laughs> <laughs> but in various ways, all his all his videos are trying to do the same thing, which is to present him as a superman, right? Mm. Either as a superman who's harder than everyone else or a superman yeah. who's good. and in this case a superman who's more sensitive than anyone else. Yeah. And it it's his yeah. least convincing effort. Yeah, yeah, it really is, isn't it? But the the, the interview section, 
<laughs> Which is the best part, isn't it? Even in this scripted interview, he's got fucking nothing to say. He's going, oh, yeah, well, you know, I'll go around doing, you know, people want to do interviews and all the girls. So I'm going, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, I've got to go now. Yeah. yeah, and then there's people, the thing is I got like a flashback from, I don't know about you, Taylor, but I just got flashback from that of every like horrible hotel interview about nothing that I'd ever done where somebody yeah. would just stomp in and go, right, that's your lot now, fuck off. Yeah, it's, after it's like, having really, said nothing of any interest. Yeah, you yes. really know your place. It's like, yeah, I have to go now. I've got, I have to go now and do another 10 of these. And it's like, oh, God, yes. I've never felt yes. so insignificant in my fucking life. How many words could you get out of that interview that woman had with her local judge? Not just that bit. How would you do it? No, come on. Here we go. Here we go. Here's your, here's your test, right? You've, had, you've, you've got an interview with our local Jay, and he says... Yeah, I'm on tour and it's kind of crazy and there's loads of girls and I've got to go to the record shop and do a signing and oh, you see, I've got to go now. You've got to turn that into 400 words. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, I could do that. I'm a pro. Go on, how'd you you start? I don't know. I would do some kind of... I would would just go really kind of high concept and just I would just do like a kind of deconstruction of... of, uh, Who was it who... There was a thing in Vanity Fair recently where it was like... It was an interview that had hardly any quotes at all. And it's like, is it just that the journalist didn't get anything good, or is it just that the journalist yeah. is a bit is a bit mad and just wants to, you know, has got a platform? Who was some actor or other? I can't remember. But um, yeah, I just I just pull one of those really. I just go on. Yeah. I kind of did that once. I interviewed the Cardigans, and they were so fed up. And it was obvious, and they and it's like they've been the Cardigans for ages. They don't want to do any more of these interviews. They're already pissed off. And also, you know, um, Nina Pearson's perfectly lovely, but you know, um, there's there's a weird vibe between her and the rest of the band. And so I just went on about right. that, really, for, you know, and it was one of the better things I ever wrote. So, um, apparently. But um, I don't know. God, it's all such a long time ago that I used to yeah. I used to do these things for pennies. As opposed to now, where we do these things for free. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Quite so. The following week, I Need Love jumped up to number nine and would eventually get to number eight. The follow-up, Go Cook Creator Go, would only get to number 66 in November of this year. And in the same month when LL toured the UK with Public Enemy and Eric B and Rakim, he performed the song with a routine that went down a treat when he did it in America, which involved him doing the song while knobbing a sofa, (laughs) which got him bottled off stage in Hammersmith Odeon. (laughs) (laughs) LL would further explore his sensitive side with the singles Big Old Butt, where he keeps dumping his girlfriends whenever he sees someone with a fatter ass than them, and they're jingling, baby, which is about the noise his partner's massive gold earrings make when he's giving them a seeing to. The highest new entry on the chart this week, straight in at number five, the title track from his new album. Here's Michael Jackson and Bad. Born in Gary, Indiana in 1958, Michael Jackson is Michael fucking Jackson. (laughs) This is the second cut from the LP of the same name and the follow-up to I Just Can't Stop Loving You, which got to number one only last month. The video which was premiered in the UK by Channel 4 over three weeks ago, cost over $2.2 million to make, was directed by Martin Scorsese, and is 18 minutes long. 
and involves Michael studying at a posh school and then going back to his mams in the projects, only to be accused by Wesley Snipes and his mates of not being Dan anymore whilst they're silently wondering what happened to his nose and skin tone and ends with him displaying his masculinity through the medium of dance. It's this week's highest new entry at number five. Now, this is a this is a fucking massive deal, isn't it? Yeah. So why is it being wedged into the breakers section? I wondered that. I thought it might have been because the video was premiered on Channel 4 and they might have had some sort of exclusive deal. But if that was three weeks prior to this, mm. uh, I have no explanation. Is this a forerunner to the, you know, hype up a song months, you know, weeks and months in advance um, before they release it like it was in the 90s? Which is why we got so many songs going straight in the number one at that time. Yeah, but if Michael Jackson's got an album coming in 1987, it's just, yeah. you can't not do that, can you? Just, you, you mention that it's going to yeah. come out and that the hype uh, hype snowball starts there. Yeah. I mean, is, is this Top of the Pops like cocking its nose up at videos in 1987? And videos, music videos themselves being not seen as much of a big deal anymore? It's a bit previous of them to do that, isn't it? I mean, this is a fucking bad video. It's directed by Martin Scorsese. Mm. It's eighteen minutes long. It's amazing. Yeah. Like, what? What, are, what do you think? What do you think you're fucking doing? Yeah. I mean, it's like where? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's uh, LL Cool J mm. has, has, has uh, you know had a go at doing something, and then it's like you know, which which is which is very regrettable for all concerned, and then it's like this kicks in, and it's like my, you know, I, I wasn't I wasn't expecting it. My heart my my heart just pressed against my ribs. This is the only way I can describe it. It's like, oh, and I've seen it, you know, a hundred <laughs> times. And it's like, but after that kind of, you know, um, yeah. incredibly, it's like the sort of dishwater dregs of, of hip hop. And then it's like, bam, 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 your bird is mine. And it's like, oh my Christ. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, I can't, the thing is that there's, you, if you're going to expect any objectivity from me about this record, then you, you, you're not going to get it. Because, you know, this is like, this was like the album of my childhood. This was definitely when I, you know, um, I don't think I did. I get this album this year. I probably got it. I had a cassette of it, and I probably got it the year after. But it's, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I would. I would listen to it. Um, I would listen to it all day long. Even now, I think it's a it's a pop monolith. And was it a big deal at your school then? Well, this is the weird thing because I knew that he was the biggest pop star in the world, and uh, he had you know presumably millions of fans. None of them at my school. None of them in, mm. in West Yorkshire. It was like you know, it was it was something that I that I shared with with no one basically. Um, I, wow. So, I don't know. Or maybe I was at, uh, yeah. I don't know what they were all into, but uh, it was not Michael Jackson. But I loved you know, I loved the um, the the ridiculousness of this. And it was like you know, this kind of West Side Story gangster panto in New York. Again, it's this kind <laughs> of. Um, oh, I, I just love I think... the idea of gangster panto, man. <laughs> Motherfucker goose. <laughs> there was quite a bit of disrespect uh, being thrown at, at the American stars of the time. I mean, M Madonna was seen as a bit of a slapper. Um, Prince was just fucking mental. Uh, <laughs> Michael Jackson was even more mental. Uh, I, 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 only Bruce Springsteen was seen as, oh, yeah, he's all right, he's proper music. But, yeah, it was... Um, they were always slapped down. I, I think we're seeing it here. You know, this is the fucking epochal event of of this month. And it's like, oh, yeah, here's Michael Jackson. Oh, isn't he a bit mad? Look at it. Look what he's doing now. But the thing is, in America, big stars were really big stars. 
and people hadn't quite worked out yeah. what we now know, which is that fame and fortune on that scale um, destroys the mind and soul or corrupts the mind and soul at least. Mm. Um, and it has exactly the same effect on you as mental illness in that whatever is bad in you will rise to the surface and that mm. becomes you and what you do. And it becomes celebrated. Depending on what it is, yeah. that's the thing. Yeah. Because, you know, if if you are, you know, a harmless eccentric at heart, that will come to the surface. If you're a killer or murderer or you're violent or whatever, that will also come to the surface. And you basically if you if you get that big, you just have to hope that you're more of a Paul McCartney than a John Lennon, you know, or more of a Roger Daltrey than a Keith Moon, or more of a Bruce Springsteen than a Michael Jackson. Um, because you don't have any choice over this. Whatever's inside you um, that isn't nice will come out. Um, and and the chances are you will be too young to handle it at the time. Yeah. Then again, Michael Jackson is a nasty little shit because... Um, oh, he's having a go at Michael Jackson now. You know, regardless of, you know, having to be a child star and brought up... And, you know, never having any emotional grounding. You only have to look at the way he shafted his mate, Paul McCartney, for the Beatles copyrights. Yeah. You know? That's not because he was emotionally damaged by being a child star. That's just because he's, he's a bit of a wanker, <laughs> you know. I love that this is where that's that's what you go for. That's like the thing that, you know, that is that is really that grinds your gears the most. Yeah, but he but, was he was acquitted of everything else, wasn't he? So I don't yes. want to go there. Yeah, all the doves were released for him. But I hate I hated mm. this at the time, right? I'd sorry to get repetitive here, but I hated this when it came out. And I loved mm. Billy Jean and and Thriller and Off the Wall just yeah. like everyone else did. But as soon as this came out, I thought this is pure shit. Some twerp on the school bus had the cassette of this and made the driver put it on every day oh. going into school. And it was a downgrade from the tape that the driver used to play of his own volition, which was Hot Dog by Shaking Stevens. <laughs> so, ev so every morning it was like uh, uh, Dirty Diana. And I could have lived yeah. with it. I could have lived with it if he hadn't tried to act hard in the videos. That was mm. what really got me. I mean, he did it in Beat It, but Beat It at least is a song about not having a fight. Yeah. And uh, at least it's a great record. Whereas this just seemed so laughable. And whereas now yeah. I'd look at the video to bad and I'd laugh a lot and think, well, it all adds to the gaiety of nations. Back then... Um, I didn't know which was worse, the macho posturing, which <laughs> yeah. offended my sensibilities, man, or the knowledge that in reality, if he'd found himself in Aylesbury Town Centre at closing <laughs> yes. time on a Friday night, he'd have ended up looking like six tins of cat food. I mean, even <laughs> even more than he actually did end up looking like six tins of cat food. Um, that just turned me right off from the start. What, you know this is not really much. Surely, even in your callow youth, you didn't, you, you know, this is not actually macho posturing. It's it's poncing about in a subway, but really, really good poncing about in a subway. Like, if you watch the, you know, it's it's um, you see the making of the Thriller video and they're like, look how rehearsed these, these dancers are. And when they jump... Mm. They all leave the ground the exact same amount. They all they're all like, you know, an inch and a half off the ground exactly together. And it's the same in, in bad, you know, they must have drilled the fuck out of them. So it's mm. you know, it's not and he looks, you know, he's he's this incredibly you know, he's this sort of 
strange looking but kind of beautiful uh, slightly androgynous looking guy so it's not you know there is there is never anything macho about him at all he was kind of he was obviously sort of fascinated by this because this kind of wasn't his experience of of being a man so there was this kind of weird fascination with that but there was this kind of subversion of it you know so um well accidental subversion of it i mean i'd like to like him a lot more than i do because you can't pretend Michael Jackson wasn't insanely talented, at least mm. within his wheelhouse. But the problem was, fundamentally, he had no taste and no wit, um, which is fine when everything else is is working and it's all you know kept minimal and cutting, or when it's completely over the top, like Thriller. But I don't know, this just seems to me like he's trying to express some swollen fantasy idea of his own presence and his own importance which is what macho posturing is so in that sense it's no different from the real thing and also I mean I I don't want to you know I don't want to be too down on your favorite album but it's to me it's a turkey that even Quincy Jones can't roast I've I've never liked this album never liked this album I thought it was where he just dropped off it's not for you taylor this is the thing it's not for you it's for me all right so, yeah. so there you're welcome to it yeah well no i mean look come on there is no i mean look i don't i don't actually i don't actually want to argue with you because i don't really give a fuck but <laughs> i mean you know it's it's so it's it's such a complete piece of work almost every song you know there's yeah dirty diana is is obviously the dud you know and even i would probably fast forward through <sighs> that on my on my cassette on my walkman but you know it's like nine I know this was, you know, everyone got sick of it because nine out of the 11 tracks on it were singles. But even the ones that weren't singles could have been singles. And it's like, you can't, whatever your thoughts about, you know, whatever your feeling for the album is, it's like, what albums can you say that about? Yeah. Really? That none of those would have got chucked out of the charts, you know, if they turned up going, is it all right? It's like, yeah, no, you're coming in. Please, you'll, you'll uh, make it, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll glam up the place a bit. So, so in other words, Taylor, she's tailing you. You're doing wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no. So the following week, Bad nudged up to number three for two weeks. The follow-up, The Way You Make Me Feel, also made it to number three in December of this year, and he's had to wait four years for his next UK number one with Black or White. who has not done Top of the Pops for 17 years and he wants to take over the entire studio with Let's Work. Here's Mick Jagger. Go, Mick! Born in Dartford in 1943, Mick Jagger was the lead singer of a band called The Rolling Stones, who had a number 26 hit in November of 1982 with a cover of Smokey Robinson's Going to a Go-Go. In 1985, he released his first solo LP, She's the Boss, and scored a number 32 hit with a single Just Another Night, 
to the general dischuffedness of Keith Richards. After his cover of Dancing in the Street with David Bowie got to number one in September of 1985, Jagger and Richards had a major falling out during the recording of the LP Dirty Work, which Jagger refused to tour, and it appeared that the band was over. Meanwhile, this is the first single from his new solo LP, Primitive Cool, and the performance was filmed in the Top of the Pop studio two weeks ago in anticipation of it getting straight into the Top 40, but it didn't. At this time, it's only managed to get up to number 41, hence Top of the Pops pulling the trigger on it. And uh, Mike Smith was talking a load of bollocks because it's actually 16 years since Mick Jagger was in the Top of the Pops studio when the Rolling Stones did Brand Sugar in 1971. There's loads of busting child performers, just like those countries in Eurovision that know their song's a bit shit, but they're hoping to get some sympathy votes off non ours Sarah, what did Mick Jagger mean to you at the time, if anything? <sighs> um, probably not very much. Um, I just I thought he was thought he was an old bloke. You know, how old was mm. all right? How old was Mick Jagger in nineteen eighty seven? Forty four. He... <laughs> Forty four. He was younger than me. Just. <laughs> but he still got this this full lustrous head of dark hair, and I was thinking. <laughs> What a different and perhaps more interesting world this would be if Mick Jagger had lost all his hair by the age of 29. Mm. <laughs> Imagine there's, a, there's a, somewhere in the multiverse, you know, there is a universe in which Mick Jagger just went bald and, you know. Similarly, there's also another world where this is his first single and yes. the Rolling Stones had never existed and he's 44 and this is his debut release with that face and that dancing and, and those vocals... But it's all uh, denormalised because it's heard for the first time and seen for what it really is. Uh, imagine living on that planet. I have to point out that yeah. he's, he's wearing... What is it that he's wearing in this performance? It's a kind of slightly puffy, off-white shirt, and I can't tell if it's if he's wearing mm. a waistcoat over it or if the waistcoat is actually built into the shirt. He looks Ooh. like... It's 1987, you can't, you can't you, you tell, can't, can you? You, know, you can't reliably, you can't tell. I mean, he looks like a sort of Regency painter and decorator. <laughs> I mean, Taylor, I, I mean, I'm guessing, Sarah, that you, all you probably knew of Mick Jagger was an impersonation that someone like, I don't know, fucking Dustin G did on on the laughter oh show God, one that's, night. That's probably true, actually. I mean, I don't, I don't remember having mm. any real cognizance of Mick Jagger or who Mick Jagger was or what his hair was about. So, you know. Taylor, but I'm kind of assuming that if you're into Velvet Underground and all that kind of stuff, you're probably into the Stones at this time, yeah, aren't you? Yeah, I was into the Stones, but... Um, that- because it's worth bearing in mind that at this time, Channel 4 had put out uh, the film Sympathy for the Devil and Gimme Shelter. So, you know, he kind of like late, late 60s Stones would have been, you know, quite a, a, a good name to drop right about this time, yeah. along with the doors. Yeah, well, let's leave the doors to one side, but I was mm. well into the Stones. I, uh, I mean, there's, while there's much to dislike about the Rolling Stones, if you're going to be strict about it, they were mm. still one of the greatest bands of all time, for a, a, at least for the first 10 years. And mm. Mick, for all his absurdity, was a big part of that because uh, yeah. it was his strange blend of machismo and nerdiness and camp 
that made them culturally different from, you know, Guns N' Roses or someone like that. It was, mm. uh, as well as just better. Um, but, yeah, this is a production number. Like, Top of the Pops has given him the whole studio, um, mm. and he's allowed to bring all these kids in and take over the whole studio for this performance, uh, based on the strength of who he was. Um, mm. And even though this is not how he became what he was. Like, if Mick Jagger says to you, oh, I've got a whole new concept for presenting my new single, well, you should be wary, because he's not exactly the chameleon of pop, is he? I mean, fucking hell. No. How many times has Mick Jagger tried to deviate even slightly from the formula and the results were good? Never. Not once. Mm. Never. So what you get is this. And one of the most interesting things about the 80s is the way that musicians of an earlier time... Uh, responded to it and tried to get with it. Um, but, I mean, Mick Jagger spent his whole career saying, let's get loose. And then mm. suddenly, now he's richer than Caesar. Uh, it's, hey, everybody, let's tighten up. Let's work. Yeah. Get your boots on, yeah. you horrible little man. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, and he also, he doesn't realise that the rest of pop music tightened up about 10 years ago while yes. he was a tax exile in the south of France. Um, yeah. And I mean, I've always said to be one of the greats, you have to combine your talent and imagination with being a bit of an idiot because you need that lack of self-consciousness and self-awareness just to fully own the fundamental absurdity of what you're actually doing and thereby transcend it, uh, which is why Leonard Cohen or Joni Mitchell are cult heroes, whereas Mick Jagger and David Bowie were superstars well here we just see the idiot part of that formula with all the talent mm. and imagination kicked away and it's fascinating but it's also very shit <laughs> yeah it's yeah, awful he's, isn't he's it fro yeah. he's frolicking he's frolicking about the studio like a like a lamb in a top of the pop studio and and you know and the play uh, to you <laughs> know to give him credit like the entire place is actually jumping but i guess they were all you know they were all sort of Told, told to, to on pain of death also he's, he's sort of capering about on the gantry which is like oh look he's up on the gantry oh, i have to point out cindy lauper did that first she never gets credit for this she was the, mm. she was the gantry pioneer i think she she never gets enough credit <laughs> um but it doesn't have it's not it's not really a song of any sort is it it's like i will you know you forget it as you're listening to it it just kind of goes it doesn't yes. you know it's not even in one ear out the other it's not even really in your ear Especially, it's kind of no. fussing about somewhere, some dribbling down your neck, <laughs> somewhere around your chin. And by this point, <laughs> his hips are so small and his head is so big. He looks like he's yeah. wearing a Mick Jagger head. <laughs> you know what I mean? And his dance yes. is just to jump up and down, it's just to put his hands on his hips and jump up and down. Yeah. And how he's avoided a hip replacement after years of that. That bonce yeah. weight crashing down on this balsa wood <laughs> skeleton, or just hammered himself into the ground like a nail. It's really <laughs> makes you really wince to see it. You know I mean? And I'll tell you what, it's the other thing about this times have fucking changed when you see Mick Jagger making his way through a crowd of 13 year old girls looking paternal yes. with, <laughs> with stray cat blues hidden under his mattress. Yes. 
And of, and of course, I mean, it's just as well that it is a pre-recording because, you know, if they'd have said to him, yeah, Mick, you're going to be on top of the pops. Yeah, we're going to put you on after the video of Bad by Michael Jackson. That would be like being at the fucking Tummy show again, <laughs> you know, when he had to follow yeah. James Brown. Also, I mean, I think the Keith Richards myth is a bit overblown, but what would you have give? What would you give to have been at home with Keith Richards when this came on top of the pops? Who has a mouth full of Jack Daniels spraying across the room? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I remember he got a lot of shit for us at the time as well, this record, because this was like when there was like about five million unemployed. Um Mick Jagger comes out doing let's work. Yeah. He said, I ain't gonna cry for you if you're lazy. Now in his head he's talking about people who are genuinely lazy. Mm. But it just didn't sound too good. And I remember around the same time uh, Gwen Guthrie brought out uh, brought out Ain't nothing, nothing going, going on, on but the rent. rent. Which is a much better record, a much better oh, yeah, record, that's a but cheering. with a, a much more obnoxious lyric. But she managed to get away with it because uh, it was just it was <laughs> so good. And, I mean, I love that record, but, I mean, I appreciate that, that she's a fly girl mm. and therefore contractually obliged <laughs> yes. to to uh, skirt the broke ass. But it's <laughs> that one line that kills me where she says... Uh, I got lots of love to give, but I will have to avoid you if you're unemployed. Because <laughs> it's especially at the time, un, unemployed was such an eighties word. It just makes you think of, uh, you know, uh, Nicholas Witchell reading the news in front of like a a one colour graphic of a doll queue, um, and every, it's like in the video they should have had uh, Gwen Guthrie dancing around like through a like a, the kitchen of a, a 50-year-old father of four. And he sat sat with his head in his hands crying in this empty, barren kitchen. And then uh, Gwen dances across with a sparkly dress, twirling her fingers, yes. going, ah, 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 ah. Gwen Guthrie, if she'd, have, if she'd have been British, she could have said, you know, I'm, I maybe might say yes if you're on the YTS. <laughs> Yeah, but and also, you know, Gwen Guthrie, yeah, you say she's a bit of a fly girl and everything. She's not a fucking multi-millionaire tax exile. Yeah, that's the thing. And he, he just comes over as fucking Prince Philip here, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. As Paul Weller said, my hard-earned dough goes on bills in the larder, and that Mick Jagger tells us we've got to work harder. <laughs> There's about 100% more Prince Philip in this episode than I expected yes. there to be. Yes. See if you can cram him in one more time. <laughs> oh, God, As yeah. the Queen once said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there goes my knighthood. I bet Bill Wyman's thinking, well, oh, fucking hell, thank God, Mick. People might forget my fucking paedophile song now. Oh, yeah. He just reminded me of his paedophile song. Oh, shit. <laughs> Sorry, Bill. I'd also forgotten his contribution to the... Uh, the 1980s uh, unemployment crisis where he said uh, I've, I've been in I've looked in a job centre and there's loads of jobs what's the matter with these people so the following week Let's Work finally entered the top 40 at number 33 but would only get as high as number 31 the follow up Throwaway didn't get anywhere near the chart and he wouldn't chart as a solo artist again until Sweet Thing got to number 24 in February of 1992. 
listen to Graham Schiddle here. Good stuff. And now here's this week's top ten. Good move into the top ten for level 42. It's over at ten. Up 11 to number 9, Hey Matthew from Carol Fialka. We love the house nation with the Housemaster Boys, up 4 at number 8. And down 4 at 7, the Fat Boys and the Beach Boys wipe out. A good run for Tapao comes to a close with Heart and Soul down 2 at 6. The highest new entry straight in at 5, Michael Jackson and Bad. Madonna causes yet another commotion, up 3 at number 4. And up 3, 2 3, Cliff Richard, Some People. Almost at the top, but still at number two. Pump up the volume from Mars. Well, that's nearly it for this week. We'll be waiting here for you, same time, same place next week. Yeah, with an even deeper suntan, I suppose. I've not been on a sunbed, you've been on a white machine. Oh, it's very fashionable indeed. Here's a man who's been at the top of the charts for five weeks. Will he still be there next week? That's entirely up to you. Rick Astley, number one. Bye-bye. <laughs> You click on a link expected to hear the number one single from the 24th of September 1987 and you get this. Those those internet pranks. Well, ju- just so long as that mischievous trolling spirit stays good yes. <laughs> After some skin tone related banter, Smith and Davies introduce Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley. Born in Newton Le Willers, Lancashire in 1966, Rick Astley was a van driver for his dad's market garden business and a drummer in a soul covers band called FBI who graduated to frontman status when the previous one left to become a hairdresser. After a while, he was spotted by Pete Waterman, who signed up the band and assigned Astley to the role of tape operator in an attempt to get him used to the recording process and overcome his natural shyness. His debut single, When You Gonna, failed to chop, but this follow-up, recorded on New Year's Day of this year and sat on by Pete Waterman for eight months, took four weeks to rock it up to number one, and this is its fifth week here. Fucking hell. All these big guns being pulled out, and here's the number one. Well, this is this is the thing, right? Is that I'm actually I I you know I I realised that this was uh, this was the number one in this episode, and and I did I I did I've never you know I never I never really had um you know it's a sort of middling pop song which has become incredibly annoying, but you know I don't think I hated it at the time. I mean I found I mostly found um, Stock Aitken and Waterman stuff a bit embarrassing. This was when it was like. Um, you know, I was sort of. Ooh, I, yes. I really love pop music, and I thought this is what people who don't like pop music think all pop is like. Do you know what I mean? And so it's like I, I don't, I don't like this. I don't think this is, you know, um, this is the right kind of face to be to be showing the world. You know, um, but I didn't. You know, this was kind of the thing that I hated the least. I think, but I really, mm. um, I thought I'd look up like you know Rick Rolling because obviously it was a thing for you know it's been a thing for like. Uh, for many years on the internet and um and i thought well surely that's all died down now it's not really a thing and also you know that this is a year where everything is, is sort of weird and mad and you know that's sort of too too much of an innocent thing and the first thing that pops up is a, an article from two days ago mm. um from the uh cornell sun times for cornell university ivy league <laughs> university in um ithaca in new york 
hundreds rickrolled in mysterious campus prank at Cornell. So some engineering students with, with too much time on their hands <laughs> made some little tiny devices and all they do all they do is play Never Gonna Give You Up in a sort of 8-bit version. <laughs> and they just secreted them all over Cornell. So people were hearing it and going, the fuck is that? Mm. You, go, you go in the canteen in Cornell and you're trying to discuss oh. literature and it's like, nee, 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 nee. Where is it coming from? And it's like he's hidden it in under statues and in on tops of shelves, and they don't know who did it. And just somebody went to all that trouble of using their engineering expertise to yeah. do that. And I don't know, considering that you know the thing with Rick Rolling is it's like it's such an innocent thing, it's such an innocent prank. Mm. You could just as easily make trick people mm. into looking at a bit of pornography yeah. in which a man is doing something that he shouldn't with a donkey. But you yeah. don't. You just send them to this record instead. And there's something, there is a purity about that that I celebrate. What I thought you were going to say is that two days ago, it was like <laughs> Donald Trump tweeted, uh, I have an important <laughs> announcement about US relations with North Korea. Because <laughs> he would. And then there's like a tiny Earl link. <laughs> no, mm. he'd never do that, though. Yeah. That's, it's too human. It's a human yeah. thing. And he wouldn't. He, he's not capable of doing that. He tried to own coffee fee, and that that fucked up in his face. He tried to make out like he made a funny, and it's like, well, this well, man doesn't yeah, have a sense of humour. You don't reach that, that so, you know. level in this world if you've got a sense of humour. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I I watched this this clip of Rick Astley, and two things struck me. First of all, for a man who at the time was sold entirely on his ability as a singer. Mm. Um, he does begin this song sounding alarmingly like a cow that's been kicked in the udders. Yes. It's not It's not a pretty noise that no. he's making. And the other thing, um, the first thing that struck me, and I know this was remarked upon at the time, was his incredible vocal, physical, and spiritual resemblance to Max Bygrove. Yes. Now, Fuck yes. I, I thought, well, look, this sounds familiar. I remember people saying this at the time. Is this just an old cliche that I've forgotten along with so much else. So I went to Google and I typed in Rick Astley, Max Bygraves. And when you do that, the first result is a question on Yahoo Answers (laughs) saying, is Rick Astley, Max Bygraves, love kid? (laughs) To which, to which the best, what's been voted the best answer is Rick Astley makes me want to hit him in the face with a pine cone. (laughs) I, I can't, I can't top it. <laughs> and of course, the other thing that was about at the time was oh thick god. twats coming up to you and go, "Oh god, you never guess what? Rick Astley is white." And you listen to this and you go, "How much of a thick cunt must you be? Have you? Have you? How? How did that get into your head? What? Because he's got a deep voice." So you know, how how did you feel when you found out that David Sylvian wasn't black? Also, because even the even though I mean it's a it's a pseudo soul record, I suppose. But if you took the synth strings off this and removed that sort of spurious, uplifting feel, you can hear how clanky and parping and British it really sounds, mm. right? And in some ways, you have to say that's its saving grace because there's nothing else going for it. And at least that's a moderately weird sound, but it's not a good sound. And I feel now sometimes you're almost expected to like Stock Aitken and Waterman stuff mm. because it's factory-made pop and yeah. because because it was hated at the time, but also because it's 
pure bubblegum and factory-made pop, which is like saying you should enjoy drinking the contents of condoms that you found on the adventure <laughs> playground because you like sex you know it's like, this is just taylor jesus not not, not saying i'm, I've done I'm it. going now i have i have gone but most I of most of most of this stuff really anymore. is just shoddy space filling paste it has to be said and the fact that some of it isn't and they actually did about three or four really great records mm. just just highlights the the general laziness and lack of inspiration mm. with which they approached their work most of the time to me at the time i fucking despised this record this was this was gary and sharon music and 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 more importantly it was my sister's music you know um she was 2 years younger than me and you know this was the kind of this was the the fucking national anthem of her touching up a massive frothy perm necking halves of lager and orange at new york new york where the staff all danced on the bar and then off to either barry noble's astoria or chivago's necking some pernos and then copping off with someone with a pencil tash in a suit from from clock tower at cna basically having a better time than i was yeah this is it to me now i just think that sounds like more fun than i've ever had in my life but you know and you, t- and you tell the youth of today they refuse to believe you oh yeah you had to go to this club you had to wear a suit and a tie and have some italian looking shoes or they wouldn't let you in that that, that the one nightclub Zhivago's i mentioned earlier they had a strict you've got to wear a tie policy and if you walk past it uh, when the pubs were chucking out it was um it was built into the shopping center and next door to Zhivago's was um you know some clothes shops and you know market stalls that sold fabric and stuff and you'd see blokes going through the bins looking for a bit of fabric and ripping it up and fashioning it into a tie so they could get into this club (laughs) bloody hell fucking ridiculous and i looked down my nose up at the time but then i would go to somewhere like rock sitter or the garage and i would be turned away for not looking alternative enough oh you know i.e not not having a fucking james t-shirt on or something like that with all these were there like these sad marauding gangs of of like all everyone who couldn't get into either Chivago's or rock city yeah well you you you'd, you'd go home and watch it man and her and and take the piss out of um out of gary's and sharon's and because because it was great because you could take the piss out of them without them beating you up i'll tell you what else i hate about this song is the lyrics <laughs> um the opening lines to this song are we're no strangers to love you know the rules and so do i a full commitment's what i'm thinking of you wouldn't get this from any other guy right now first of all um yeah welcome to the 80s it's self-aggrandizement posing as decency and the glorification of 1950s type straightness against uh you know this aggressive conformity in fucking pleated trousers again but also it's so dodgy what is he doing there is he like is he negging this woman so you wouldn't get this from any other guy it's like what you know what else you gonna get right who else is gonna be interested in you 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 have to you have to it's like (laughs) i don't know it's i mean i any man in the world and an increasing number of women can see through 
this stuff, right? And mm. when you find it in lyrics from songs from the period, it, it clangs like a fucking bucket. It's like it's like he's messaging someone on a dating site saying, hey, you seem so unlike all the other girls on this site who are whores. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's just fucking terrible, really horrible. It's uh, um, all coming out of this... this this doughy faced prick, you know. <laughs> but this was a number one for five fucking weeks. Five weeks. And you know, some of the some of the people we've gone through, some of the bands and artists we've gone through, this is a fucking enormous iconic eighties names. And there's a lot of upcoming bands and everything, but and this this has been chosen to 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 rule the charts for over a month. Never mind, eh? the following week never gonna give you up drop down to number two knocked off the top spot by pump up the volume by mars but he got to number one in 25 different countries including the usa a year later and it won the brit award for best single the follow-up whenever you need somebody got to number three in november of this year and he'd have eight top 10 hits on the bounce until his career petered out in 1993 Live this Saturday morning are Sarah Green and Philip Schofield in a brand new show with lots of surprises. Mark Chase will file special reports on anything that takes his fancy. Peter Simon introduces a new trivia quiz. There's a press conference with Peter Howard from the hit series Brett. And this week's special pop guests are Living in a Box, who joins Sarah Green and Philip Schofield going live this Saturday morning at 9.30 on BBC One. So, what's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One follows up with EastEnders, where Lofty is trying to get Michelle to fucking cheer up for once. (laughs) Then Tomorrow's World looks at a car that does 100 miles to the gallon. Then it's the episode of Only Fools and Horses, where Rodney starts knocking about with a female police officer, followed by Blackadder III, who has to rewrite Dr Samuel Johnson's dictionary, and finishes off with Question Time and the original TV version of The Untouchables. BBC Two is screening Ebene, a black magazine programme. Call My Bluff with Anne Garrard Rees, Sheila Stiefel and Ian Ogilvie. Ian Ogilvie, fucking hell. Top Gear, Moonlighting, the Leeds International Piano Competition and more darts. ITV has Only When I Laugh, Strike It Lucky, a discussion about euthanasia in this week. The A-Team and the final episode of Connor. And Channel 4 has an episode of Equinox, which examines the conflict of interest between industry and the environment. A mini-series about the love affair between Nelson and Winnie Mandela. The Japanese history documentary Showa. And the John Gielgud film The Secret Agent. So, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow, me dears? I'd have been talking to my mate about Jagger. And oh dear, isn't it sad? It's not quite Gimme <laughs> Shelter, is it? And my God, is there no hope? And then we'll conclude that there isn't. Mm. And we'd be right. Um, well, I would say Michael Jackson, obviously, except not in that playground. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, just in pure disgust. I don't know. Rick Astley and what he's still doing at number one. <laughs> and what are we buying on Saturday? Quite honestly, yeah. I wouldn't have bought any of these. I would have been buying fucking Strange Ways <laughs> Here We Come, which came out this month. And then and then thinking, actually, Morris is a yeah. twat, isn't he? Which I remember occurred to me around this time. 
And what does this episode tell us about September of 1987? <laughs> we're nearing the end of it all. And this really is the final shutdown of the most intense period of cultural change and artistic endeavour since the Renaissance. It's over just in time for me to come of age. It tells us that... Um 1988 is going to be a lot more interesting than anyone thought it would be. Yeah, doesn't it get better in 1988, Taylor? A little, yeah. <laughs> a little. No, it does. It's good. It's, no, it's good to uh, good to end on a positive well, note. Know, it's like the well, it's the largest you know kind of um, youth movement since punk, you know. So, but just just that. Yeah. Well, this, this is the the thing about this episode of Top of the Pops. There's no house on it, and there was already house in the charts. Yeah, but a lot not of house in it. Yeah. Other than that, this is this top of the pops is uh, a good choice because it's very representative of 1987. Mm. The only two things missing are that f- uh, faux Celtic rock um, and house, but yeah. they hadn't really worked out what to do about house yet. Well, this is what you got to look forward to in a couple of years' time, people who watch uh, the the top of the pops repeats. On BBC Four, uh, sorry to break it to you like this, but you won't see this one. We watched it, so you don't have to. So that brings us to the end of another episode of Chart Music. All that remains is the usual shit. www.chartmusic.co.uk, facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast, and you can join the many celebrities on Twitter, including Jay Aston and Dean Friedman, who recently followed us on Chart Music for for God knows why, uh, at Chart Music T-O-T-P. I shat myself when I saw that. I hate yeah, it. I you You're going to wake up tomorrow morning and it's going to say, uh, Jan Hammer followed you. <laughs> <laughs> no, what's going to happen is someday soon I'm going to fucking get up in the morning and pad to the fucking bathroom and <laughs> fucking up. Why is that toothbrush got Dean Friedman written on it? <laughs> anyway, pop crazed youngsters, that is the end of this episode of Chart Music. All that remains for me to do is say thank you very much, Sarah B. Thank you. Please come back whenever you feel like it, Ducker. And thank you very much, as always, Taylor Parks. It's been pleasurable. My name's Al Needham, and I drink the contents of condoms in adventure playgrounds because I like sex. Sharp music. junior so I do a bit of everything which includes keeping the cash machine loaded no it's easy a bit like a photocopier except the paper's more expensive oh shut your pan your bell and pop crazy youngsters on behalf of all of us here I'll tribute to Malcolm
Powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.